Hey, this is Benjamin Mara. You're listening to 11 O'Clock Comics. There you go. Is that all right? Picturesque. Okay. All right, all right. Sound a little short, but I'm good. That's I'm not good. even. Good, a, I'm good. That's not an accurate descriptive term for a sound. Picturesque. <laughs> I couldn't. It's true. In fact, yeah, I couldn't have picked a worse word. Picturesque. Symphonic. Yes, that sound is picturesque. Who who wrote my? To my eyes. Who wrote my lines this time? Sucky suckin' eh. Good to hear your voices. I've got a hybrid episode. For real, though. It's strange. It's going to be a strange thing. And we can't talk Luckily, about it people yet. Are, people are used to these, these bonus apps and these extra long apps, so they're still probably catching up. For real. And in a way, mm-hmm. this ended up being serendipitous because major news broke today, and had we put out the episode yesterday, we wouldn't have known about this news and wouldn't have talked about it until next week. I know, right? It's a big deal. Great. I'm excited. Yes. I am excited as well. I'm I'm elated at the contingency news, but I'm excited for the news. That that nobody that you said on the DL. Oh jeez. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh-huh. That's a cause for rejoice. Hmm. As is everything we hear these days, because we just love everything. It's, it's we love a, it all. It's a big old love fest, right? Yep. Yup. Yup. You were just a Pepperidge Farms guy. Yup. Uh-huh. Yup. Cracker. He does remember. Farm. Love Pepperidge Farm. Yep. Who doesn't? Is there anybody who doesn't love Pepperidge Farm? I don't know. I don't want to know them. I you don't know? even know. I know. I am confident that this... Is eleven o'clock comics episode five hundred and seven, y'all? I will save. And I'm happy, and I'm Vince B. Oh, I am happier, Vince B. I am happy we are here together tonight. I'm David A. Price. You is. That's true, but I made my former owner extremely happy this week because I'm Salvatore Mundi. Crickets. Who's this? What? Who's this person you are? Salvatore Mundi is the Da Vinci painting that sold for $450 million this week. I thought you said Salvador. What did you say? I said Salvatore Mundi. Oh, okay. The, how Savior much? Savior of the world. $450 million. Million. Well, if you got it. <laughs> That's the one I told you I got to see in person the week yeah, before. Yeah, right. I wouldn't pay that for for that painting. <laughs> Well, considering that the prior record for a painting was one hundred and eighty million dollars, I don't think anybody thought it would go for that. Was that wasn't that the the Basquiat for one hundred and eighty million? No, Picasso, La Femme d'Alger. Okay, I'd pay one hundred and eighty million for that. You would? Yeah, I'd pay cool. I'd pay one hundred and eighty million for a, a Basquiat or a Warhol. Yes, you would. You would, yeah, totally. Yeah. You well, would. so interestingly enough, um, at Christie's, when the where the Mundi was on display, there were three paintings in the room. There was the Mundi, there was an El Greco that's uh, that, that's my partner's family's that's being auctioned off, and then there was a there was a Warhol, 
and it was the Last Supper War Hall, which is it's massive. It mm-hmm. is it's I couldn't believe how big it was. I mean, it's uh, it's it's the size of oh geez, I'd, like a like two Greyhound buses, maybe. Yeah, incredible. I would love that. I would build a house around it, even though it's uh, the Last Supper and stuff. Andy still had people touch that. Dude, the crazy <laughs> thing about um, this painting, and I cannot get over it. Four hundred fifty million dollars is 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 impossible to fathom in its own right. But the fact that a great many art historians think it's fake, and yet it still went for that price, is just jaw dropping. It's nuts. I, I got to tell you, it, it's it was fascinating in person. It 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 um, I I think it was more impressive than the Mona Lisa, personally. Mm. But. Hmm. Well, maybe he pulled the Neil Adams and he diddled with it, like af- <laughs> after the fact, and that's why it looks like a forgery. Wait, do you, well, I know you're joking, but that is one of the main reasons that people are doubt doubt it, doubt it because it was allegedly completed in 1507, mm-hmm. and art historians say that that based, and I assume they all know this because of their research, that any Da Vinci work that was completed in his workshop after 1500 or so was more of a um, like Collaborative bull pen, bull type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a he had a whole group of people working for him. Of course. And did. so some would debate whether or not this is a, a Da Vinci or if this is of the Da Vinci of the Leonardo school. Right. And I think, I mean, does that really matter? No. I don't know. Right. It doesn't. I mean, it doesn't doesn't really matter. I don't. Mm-mm. Like if he was over if he was actively overseeing it to its completion, then it doesn't matter. Right. I mean, if he just handed it off and someone else painted it and then he put his name on it, that'd be different. But it wasn't like they, that's what it wasn't like he, that was what he was doing. So. Right. Is, but I don't know if you know that, that like this thing was sold once for fifty nine dollars. That's then the, the Woolworth version no, of it. And then someone else bought it for ten thousand at an estate sale in two thousand and five. Mm-hmm. So in, so from two thousand and five to two thousand and seventeen, it went from being worth ten thousand. To four hundred and fifty million dollars. Wow, that's how my stuff's gonna go, dude. Yeah. I, I need you to, I need you to start cranking some stuff out, and I need to procure it so I can hold on to it. But it's what, I, brain, what I'm saying life. is, is Otomo's Akira any lesser because he had assistants that worked on it? No, no, no. Or Disney films, right? Right. Yep. You can't tell where the artist ends and the assistants begin because he trains them to work in his style. So. I don't really think it matters. It's true. Right. Unless Frank does it. Then I'm a little cross. Mm. Yes. But you know who's not cross? Who? Discount comic book service. I'll say what. You didn't say I'm not Salvatore Mundi. You're not. No, I didn't say that because I'm all tripped up. You're not. You're not Salvador Rundy. You are Jason. I, Mr. Bundy. You are Jason Wood in the house, and you don't have. Right, it's a strange one. You don't have to sit in front of the couch with your hand down your pants to get cheap comic books and graphic novels. I'm playing off the Bundy. Um, all you got to do is go to dcbservice.com. That's Discount Comic Book Service, dcbservice.com, where you can get all the stuff you want in the previous catalog for a little itsy-teeny-weeny price, such as, it's a kind of long list this month, <clears throat> from uh, Chapter House Publishing, 
you can get Fantoma trade paperback volume one up from the deep which collects issues doesn't say from uh, Ray Fox and Sue Lee and Megan Carter this is a it looks like it's a retelling but it's a reimagining of uh, Fletcher Hanks famous well not really famous but Fletcher Hanks notable uh, character Fantoma uh, its cover price is nine ninety nine. Respect, right? For a first uh, trade paperback, they're taking mm-hmm. up the image reins, making them cheap so they get you hooked, and then you have to pay a little more for volume two. Uh, but the discount comic book service price, because that's where you go if you want to cut a huge amount off your bill, is $5.49. Where are you going to get a trade paperback for $5.49? You're supposed to say discount comic book service. Discount comic book service. That's right. And well, while you're stock trade, they're sister company. Yep. Yep. They're not Siamese twins, but they're they're siblings. Um, and if while you're there, while you're picking up this Fantoma trade paperback, you can get in on season two at a discount as well because they're offering the first issue of Fantoma season two. It's just the main cover for a dollar nine. What? What? Yes, cover price is a dollar ninety nine, but you're not going to pay that. You're getting a forty five percent off from Dark Horse and Burger Books. It's the Hungry Ghost, uh, written by Anthony Bourdain. You know him, and Joel Rose. Art by Alberto Ponticelli and my girl Vanessa Del Rey. Cover price three ninety nine. Your price, Jason. What it is? $1.99. Exactly. See? Um, last, but oh my God, not least, from DC, it's a trade paperback collection, $16.99 cover price, featuring the work of many talented individuals and their uh, submissions to the New God special, the Newsboy Legion and the Boy Commando special, Sandman special, Manhunter special, Darkseid special. If you didn't notice already... This is really special because it's Jack Kirby 100, and you can has it for $8.49. That's half off the boy's pants. So DCBService.com, go there, save. You'll be happy because your stack will grow, and you'll have more green stuff in your wallet. Fat stacks. Fat stacks. Oh, cash. Oh, cash. All yeah. The cash. It's Irish. <clears throat> Give me the cash. Hello. Give me the loot. Give me the loot. Oh, do you, uh, no, we got to do the drink roll call. Yeah, so you can get to our thank yous. Oh, yeah, because we do have oh, some, right? I do, and I know you do, and I want to know what you're drinking. I am going to leave, I'm going to prolong. You're leaving nowhere yet. No, no, no. I'm going to prolong my thank you until the very, very end. Of this thing. Very in. Okay. Because I'm going to use it for my in your travels. Oh, snap. Okay. Oh, snap. Um, but that. I'm drinking the one beer that could make me forget about the grape. Nope. Yeah, I know. But if I had to forget about the grape, this would be the beer to do it. It's mm-hmm. Sam Adams Boston Lager because it's freaking delicious. And nutritious. Well, I don't know about that, but 
It won't turn you to stone. How's that for a selling point? I love mm. it. Drink our beer. It won't turn you to stone. Boom. <sighs> so what you guys you got? drinking, Bo? I am drinking beer as well because I, wa- I went to dinner with uh, two of three children because the other children and the wife are at a seventh grade dance this evening. So we went to the to our club here in our uh, little 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 uh, home away from home, and uh, I had a couple two tree Yingling lagers. So I figured I'd keep this party rolling, and I am uh, drinking a Yingling lager. So you're lit, is what you're saying? No, not at all. Oh. Good lord! You're not, not even young, though. You're not even glowing. Um, I have some like. I have a mild sheen. Okay. What about you, bourbon man? Uh, I am enjoying some. Uh, it's not not named after Capullo, but it is. It's it's Poppy Cabernet Sauvignon Malbec blend. Hmm. That sounds cray. That sounds good. Chile, and it is uh, close to window. I it, well. Because it's chilly. It is closed because it is chilly. But the wine is uh, tis, tis, tis quite tasty. Sure. Scissor. Send me some. What is going on with your thank yous that you hinted at? Uh, well, should I spoil you in your travels then? I don't really care. You could do whatever you <laughs> want. You could do what you want, my friend. I want to thank the amazingly, stupendously talented... Mr. Matthew Allison, for this beautiful thing that is Kankor, Calamity of Challenge, uh, number three of four. If you haven't picked up any of Matthew's Kankor work, you are a silly, silly person. You should definitely have done that by now. Uh, this miniseries is a... Uh, is three quarters over and and you should totally be getting this and I, I can't wait to hear Vince talk about it later. But it's uh it's it's it is beautiful and you should have it and I want to thank Matthew for uh thinking of us and uh reminding us how awesome this is. Samesies. Grown man Grown ass yep. man saying same. Grown ass man, thank dog. You, thank you, Matthew. I also received said book. I can't say it any better than Dap said it. So hugs and uh, hugs and love. Yep. All day long. All day long. All day, every day. Yep. So, um, I don't know if this is obviously not rehearsed at all. I don't know if we want to keep our guests waiting and we want to get right into it so the listeners can enjoy that or if we want to talk about any news or save the news for after the interview. Hmm. You know what? I have to go to the little boy's room. I'll be back in... How long you was just it? Heard, yeah. How, two no, hours. Uh, two hours. I, I'll be back in approximately two hours. <laughs> Jesus. Trying to work through some issues. No, you know, <laughs> no, you know what? See, this is terrible because... All right, let's let the cat out of the back bag. Um, I was not present for the interview that you are about to hear because I was waylaid at my place of employment, which frosted my fanny because yes. I, I, I love this artist and I did not get to 
the uh, chance to talk to him. So um, my brothers did, and and you'll be able to hear it very shortly. But I hope he doesn't think that I'm just like, ah, oh, man, it's him. I'm not coming in. You guys no, do it. No, no, no. <laughs> you were missed. He, we made it clear that uh, you were you were not happy about it. You were salty. No, the dude's incredible. And and we this would was the very first time that we got a chance to really we pick his brain. We after last night because Vince never could make it. He was at work, so we're doing it in trudge. <laughs> the, uh, I need you to have codes right next to me. Pose? Did she say pose? What is going on? All right. Muting, so I wasn't playing that game. Okay. How long are you be? We just started. Oh, she's so hot. <laughs> Yes, my lovely wife is trying to fix her phone. I just want to set it up so it's a new phone so I can turn it in. Oh, you got a new one? No, I'm going to oh. make this okay. Oh, all right, hold up. Hi, Beth. She can't hear you. She, I might have to <laughs> she, one, one, three, okay. two, five, two, three. I got to take this out. Just setting it up as a nah, new phone. No, just leave it in. All right, Cinema cool. Verite. It's right. Podcast Verite. Picturesque. <laughs> she is picturesque. She, she is. very is. Oh my god! But anyway, Dap, mm-hmm. how was your week, there, buddy? What? How was your week? Oh, it was a week. Yeah. It, uh, it, it. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> Every time I think I, I I I make some headway on some shit, I oh, um, I hear you. Here's 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 the big old wall of a roadblock to make sure I can't do what I need to do. But hey, it happens, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm reading some Dick Tracy. Nice. Yeah, you know the one it is. It's the the Kyle Baker one that they published oh, when they nice. when the Disney movie came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. still one of my favorite comics like of all time and i really can't put my finger on why obviously it's kyle baker's work man's a genius the layouts are impeccable the drawing is the drawing's barely there the line is very spare and it's mostly the color that holds it all together but he captures all the characters with such so very few lines like the pacino character it's dead on, and he just uses a couple little squiggles. Boom, he gets it every single time. Like Kyle Baker's amazing, mm-hmm. and it's a silly book. It really is. Uh, three prestige format issues. I love them. Do you like the movie? I, you know, I saw it in the theater. I think I saw it in the theater more than once. I, I don't. Um, I've. Yes, I I do like the movie. It's not something I've I've seen lately. It's um I have there were time I I remember really enjoying it because I was much younger and and then I thought about it more and I'm like, well that that was kind of silly, that really didn't work. But but when because what was weird is that Warren Beatty looks nothing like Dick Tracy. It's like here's a he's dude got yellow. who's got He's got that. That's all, though, because it was it was primary colors. That's all. It was it was a four color movie, and it was beautifully shot. But um, when you think of Dick Tracy and you think of that profile, you do not think of Warren Beatty. And uh, whereas everybody else 
Al Pacino and Forsyth and everybody else is wearing all this makeup and all the prosthetics so they can look like his rogues. Uh, but yet here's handsome Warren Beatty without his chiseled chin. So the, uh, getting past the silliness of it. And, and I remember actually, I read the novelization and, and I mean, I, I ate that movie up and, and pretty much absorbed everything I could about it because I read the strips at the time. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I haven't seen it in a long time and, uh, I just, as I got older and thought about it, I, I, I thought maybe it was kind of silly. But now I think I'd like to revisit it and just see what um, see what holds up. See see if I'm thinking about it fondly through rose colored glasses, or if I'm going to watch it and be like, "No, this was this was an absolute mess." Right. Well, the trilogy is called um, True Hearts and Tommy Guns, and I, and I'd be remiss if I didn't cite the writer. It's. Uh, John Francis Moore wrote it. But uh, Disney actually published these. These mm-hmm. were published by Disney. And there's a lot, well, not a lot, but there's an uncharacteristic amount of bloodshed for a Disney comic. Like, um, there's an old man, Tess's father, in the first mm-hmm. issue, is running hooch for, <laughs> for one of the mob bosses. But he doesn't know he's running hooch. He just thinks he's bringing kitchen utensils in crates to to places, and um, a rival mob boss uh, featuring one of the the gang features the son of a woman that is uh, well. They're blackmailing the kid because he's he's a a son of a very influential woman and family. So uh, he likes to visit the. Um, the brothels and the he he's starting to go on on rides now with the gang so they're they're blackmailing the shit out of him but they they kill Tess's father they the one guy um i forget what his name is um shit lone wolf or something he unloads a shotgun r- right mm. into Tess's father and it it happens in silhouette but you get to see the after effects like Tess's father's lying in a pool of his own blood. And that's a Disney comic. So I was, I was like, whoa, this is a little raw for Disney. And they don't, um, ba- Baker doesn't shirk at approximating Madonna's, um, or Mahoney, sorry, mm-hmm. her, uh, her, uh, her curves in the, in the comic. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a, it's just so great. I read it every, I try and read it every year. But it doesn't work out that way. So maybe every other year I get around to it, and it's it's just a it's one of those perennial favorites. I can just lose myself in the pages. It's it's um, prohibition era, so uh, hooch is is verboten, and these mob bosses, the, the the depression, people, nobody has any money. People are just trying to find some work. It's it's a very, un, un, it's unfortunately it's a vibrant time in American history. Uh, misery does love company, right? But I, I love this book. I do. I, I'm okay with Beatty as uh, Dick Tracy. I don't think. I thought he. I, I thought he did a decent job in the role. I, yeah. I thought, no, I, mean, I don't think he has to look it like all, him. It was all a visual thing for me. No, it, yeah. it, especially if you're going to go out of your way to make sure everybody else is true to the strip. Well, they're uh, all freaks. I mean, if you're going to have it, a, a guy named Flattop 
and he doesn't have that mm. characteristic flat head or lips mm. or the brow, right? You got to have mm. that stuff. But do you remember when this came out in the theater and that yes. that famous scene with Madonna singing and she had that lace top on? You could see mm-hmm. right through it. Like there was nothing hidden. You could see right through it. And, mm-hmm. and like even in the video too, like her nipples are on full display, and I was like, I was aghast. Like, what? Look at what they're getting away with. You clutch your pearls? Pa- what? You clutch your pearls? No, I mean I bought the the fifty dollar Madonna stainless steel cover sex book. I had still have it. I, I bet you do. I'm I wasn't a huge fan, but I do think the woman was very attractive. I wasn't a fan of her music, but no, I wasn't. Flesh. No, and um. Well, there was a lot of people involved with the production of the the sex book that I uh, I follow. Let's just say that, and so that's why mm-hmm. I, I bought it. Um, but yeah, I love Dick Tracy by uh, um, Walt Disney Comics. If you don't have it, scoop it up. You can get them cheap, right? Quarter bins, maybe. Probably. Yeah, and they were yeah. they were four bucks around there when they were released. They're prestige format. They're just freaking great books kyle baker's regarded as a true master for just cause i mean even he's an artist artist the guys in the industry a lot of them seem to love kyle baker and and you could find out why on the pages of this dick tracy thing he's incredible and then read the shadow that he did which is equally incredible it's true it's damn true Jason, what's up? Vince, what's up? Did you put that fire out? The wifey's, the wifey's phone is jacked up. Mm. She's trying to get her fix on, but it's not looking good. Oh, well. But we did get a nice surprise appearance by the lovely Beth. She looked good, too. Damn you. Damn you, too. Yeah, she was all dolled up. She was chaperoning that dance tonight. So. Oh. so is she going or is she coming? They're back. They just got back. Oh, seventh right. grade dance. So it was like from seven to nine thirty or six thirty. Oh, okay. All right. Here, so here we go. You're gonna you're gonna hear this this wonderful interview conducted by two masters of the craft, and yes. um, we'll be back. All right. And as we alluded this week on the interwebs, we have a very special guest joining us this evening. It's been in the works for some time. In fact. We do keep a little running tab of creators that we dig a lot and uh, and sort of our wish list, our Amazon wish list, if you will. <laughs> and this gentleman has been on my wish list for a long time, and we're finally making it happen. Um, he is a multiple-time uh, a, a multiple Eisner Award winner, uh, both as the best penciler inker and as one of the co-creators of the 2016 Best New Series – which uh, most of you probably know. I'm talking about Paper Girls, which then leads you to know that uh, I am very happy to welcome to the show, uh, after after a long time coming, uh, one of the, the best artists in the business, in my opinion, uh, Mr. Cliff Chang. Welcome to the show, Cliff. Thanks. Wow, that's uh, that's quite an intro. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hey, listen, uh, any fellow Jersey kid... <laughs> And fellow Ivy Leaguer gets gets all the love from me. Awesome, thank you. <laughs> yes, I have to. You know, we have to stick together. I have to think there aren't too many uh, Ivy Leaguers in and around the comic circle. Yeah, I guess I don't know. Yeah, I guess there are a few. I always hear about them every now and then. And uh, yeah, I guess you know, stick together. Sure. <laughs> By the way, where in uh, where in New Jersey are you from? Uh, Bergen County. Ah, nice. 
I, I live right outside of Bergen County. I live in Kinalong. Okay. All right. But I grew up in I grew up actually in the town over from Princeton. So, oh, all right. Uh, yeah, all right. Hamilton. So I always swore I would never go to Princeton because it was too close to home. <laughs> yeah, that that's part of the fun of going away for school is go, getting really far away if you can, you know, or at least, you know, far enough that your parents don't just show up on a Friday night. <laughs> It's true. Although the dynamic I had with my parents was a bit different. My, um, on my 20th birthday, my father and his, his then uh, girlfriend, now my stepmother, uh, came to take me out for dinner and, uh, their gift to me was a fake ID. So (laughs) pretty good. Okay. So, (laughs) well, see, but, but, but Jason's father would know how how to spot a fake one. Exactly. This, that's It was phenomenal actually. Yeah. Yeah. It was phenomenal. My father was a police officer. So. Well, see, so like, yeah, 20, that's like barely even like, you know, like. Yeah, uh, it, it was, you know what it was? I, I was young, uh, <laughs> young for my grade. I was a year okay. younger than everyone else. So ah. I was explaining, I think, to them over yeah. the fact that all my buddies were 20. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, were yeah. 21. And okay. uh, it kind of sucked because I, was, I wasn't going to be 21 until the, toward the very tail end ah. of senior year. All right. And so uh, he remedied that for me. Much love. Much love, Pops. That's pretty great. All right. <laughs> so, so welcome to the show. I mean, um, we we caught back up in person. Uh, David, uh, David, Vince, and I got a chance to see you as part of, from our vantage, one of the most enjoyable experiences we've had in the, uh, the 12 years or so that uh, New York Comic Con's been going on. And that was the, the Felix Comic Art Dinner, where all the Felix crew... Um, got together to uh, share a meal and uh, and whatnot. So it was uh, it was good to see you there, and that was a, a really fun event. I think um, you know Felix has quickly become one of my uh, favorite people in the biz, and I, I think he is just uh, setting the tone for other art reps as to how to handle um, being an art rep. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so. He's, a, he's a really good guy, and I like that he's uh, forward thinking about the business, about the hobby. Uh, and you know, it's really, uh, and it's, yeah, it's great to be part of the crew. Absolutely. Um, so let's, um, let's, let's, let's roll back on the way back machine cause it's fitting because I think, uh, as we get into paper girls in a bit, um, you know, I, it's a book that's, uh, that's set in the eighties and, and we are all children of the eighties on the line right now. So, uh, tell us about, uh, about you as a child of the eighties. Um, you know, what, uh, what were the what were the um, formative uh, moments of your your emerging geekiness? Did you did you when did you start reading comics and and that sort of thing? And was it was it an insular thing or were, you know were you did you have a crew that were into it? It was a private thing. Uh, mm-hmm. My like a lot of you know like a lot of people, I was initiated into comics by my older brother who started buying them and bringing them home and. As soon as, you know, I'd known about comics, uh, you know, seen them around and, you know, some friends of friends might have them, uh, but they weren't really in the house, uh, you know, not, and my parents weren't against them or anything. It's just, we just didn't have it. And then my brother brought it home and it was like this weird thing that he just discovered in a weird way, you know, um, like, a, like an odd artifact, you know, and it was, I'm pretty sure an issue of X-Men, um, and uh, I think 173 with Wolverine on the cover nice. and Rogue, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that and, and the Fantastic Four and something else. And it was just, we just fell in love with it. We just, uh, those 
comics at that time were written with so much continuity in mind mm-hmm. and, and references to other books that you really felt like you were it opened a door into a whole new world, you know. So every issue, you know, had something going on in it, but then talked about at least five other issues in editor's notes, <laughs> you know, to, uh, to look back about this or that. And, and, and so kind of uh, like pregnant with like mystery and potential and like, you know, your, your mind was always spinning from all the stories that you hadn't read. Uh, so it, it just sucked me in. And it was something that me and my brothers uh, really loved, but nobody that I knew at school or hung out with on a regular basis was into. So it was just something that we, it was a family thing, um, you know, and we got really into it. My older brother is, you know, uh, quite, um, he's a, he's a bit older and like school wise, he was older than that even. So um, he eventually, I think, you know, within a year or two, you know, went off to college, but uh, I was, um, still reading and, and, and picking stuff up uh, for a year or two before everything went to the direct market and then it became really hard to pick up comics at the local uh, five and dime, you know, uh, convenience store kind of thing. So, uh, but for a good, you know, two or three years was reading a lot of stuff and, and really just pouring over it and reading it over and over. So I, you know, fell in love with it and never really thought about it being a profession until I was in college and, and wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I, I liked, I wanted to do something, you know, in art. And, uh, so it was hard for me to conceive of it, you know, like part of me always wondered if, you know, if I could go to art school or something like that, but I just didn't have it together to put together a portfolio. And I don't know if my parents ever would have been okay with that either. <laughs> Right. Um, but there was like a path. There's a clear, easy path academically to just say, okay, we'll just apply to these colleges and then see where you go, you know? And it was a lot easier not to try anything different, you know? And, and, and it was like that in college too, but uh, it just kind of, as I got closer and closer to graduating, realized that, you know, the consulting and banking jobs that my friends were going up for were not things that I was really interested in uh, personally. Like I could, I could try to fake it and maybe get to an interview, but um, the, you know, uh, not being a good fit for it, not being a really strong candidate either, you know, uh, just made me realize that, you know, I, I needed to find my own way. And I'd been doing that academically just by taking art classes. Cause I just didn't want to, you know, those were things that interested me, but um, you know, my, the practical side of me was like, Hey, get a law degree and then figure something out, you know, sure. Do something that, that'll, that'll pay you and help you pay off your, your student loans. And stuff <laughs> like that. So, so I mean, you're, you're kind of, uh, answered, um, the direction I wanted to go, which is that, um, you know, you go off to college, obviously a very competitive school. Uh, did, did you, um, what, what was your course of study? I mean, what did you major in? I was an English major, um, okay. and I liked it. I mean, I, partly because I think I was always approaching it from a practitioner's perspective. So the idea of like of like criticism and, and literature, like I was always looking at it like, how did the author obtain this kind of effect? What were they thinking of? How do you evaluate you know this work? What lens are you looking at it from? 
and and that was always interesting to me. But then you know realized you know the more of that there was, I felt like I was just studying types of criticism, and and that didn't have enough interest for me. By sophomore year, I think I realized that I needed to be taking some art classes. That it was part of me that I was neglecting, uh, and at that point, kind of split my major between. English and English lit and um, visual art. So uh, that meant I would have to do a combined thesis where it was addressing both uh, literature and art. And and, and uh, it was, I ended up, you know, doing the thesis on Milton's Paradise Lost as illustrated mm. by, um, God, wow, it's been that long. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and just looking at the illustrations as a form of criticism because there was enough writing um, uh, by the by the illustrator to to um, kind of facilitate that and you know to kind of cross reference it and everything. So it was uh, you know it was it was really interesting to me. But you know I, I ended up with this very weird degree and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Uh, when I left and ended up, you know, I applied to law school, but then deferred, got in and deferred for a year mm-hmm. uh, or two years, actually, and was looking for um, work in comics. And that's, you know, uh, and I knew I had interned at Marvel, like in my junior year and, and wanted to, I wanted to work in comics, but I knew how kind of small an industry it was and that you know right. it, and and competitive uh so you know i knew it would take a little bit to get some sort of foothold in the industry and, and it took about a year uh before i had like a kind of steady um enough of a position you know i, I got out and started working in advertising for about six months but it wasn't a very good fit and then ended up luckily getting a job uh working in comics with heidi mcdonald at disney adventures magazine Oh, that's right. Yeah, and I was assistant editor there and learned basically all the ropes of like what goes into a comic. You know, you can read about it, but until you're looking at a schedule, trying to figure out how long it takes for someone to write a comic and draw a comic and ink it and color it and that sort of thing, like that's when, as an editor, you know, you really get to understand the workflow and and everyone's value and 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 what they contribute to the final product. Sure. So, uh, it, it was, it was great doing that. I did that for about, you know, almost a year before I moved on to vertigo where I was doing a, a very similar job, but at a place, you know, that I'd always wanted to work at. I, I stopped reading comics like in high school. I think maybe a lot of, you know, kids might do that too. I think that's because probably that's when, yeah, everything went to the direct market. And so for the next four years after, after that, I, I didn't read any comics at all. Uh, I knew about it because some, you know, friends, of, you know, that I didn't see very often might be into it, and then, but didn't keep up because it was too hard to go to the mall, you know, the the weird androids dungeon uh, shop that was in the mall. Uh, so sounds delightful though. I would have loved that place. You know, it was cool. It was cool. It was weird. It was literally in the basement of the mall, oh. uh, and uh, you know, and that's where. You know, I would go once every three or four months, you know, and, and pick up a book. But it was, you know, you, you end up dropping off, yeah. books drop off and at that point, And then you're just picking up weird, you know, things like, you know, Ronin and prestige projects. And, you know, because you're just in there and you want to find something that's flashy, you know, instead of just buying, you know, 10 or 12 issues of a comic or something like that. Um, 
so yeah, so my my reading really dropped off in, in high school, and then I got back into it in college because suddenly there was time and some weird, you know, extra cash that I might have work from working like a, a work study job, and mm-hmm. uh, plus Boston had, I mean, it was a fertile place yeah. for the direct market. There were plenty of places around Interact there campus, were. I'm sure, right? Yeah, 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 and uh, it was. Uh, we went to New England Comics quite a bit okay. uh, because it was the, the dedicated comic shop. Between that and Million Year Picnic, um, you could kind of find whatever you needed, and mm-hmm. and and with a really deep, you know, um, shelf of, of stuff. So uh, New England Comics is where I went a lot and managed to get a gift certificate there by winning a Death of Superman art contest. Nice. <laughs> you know. It was. It was like you know. Super David, that's died. when you just lost that David to, to Cliff. See that? <laughs> yeah. <I was> like, <laughs> so they, they had a contest where they they said you know design a hypothetical costume for Superman's return, and I just made this kind of four page you know mini comic essentially you know with a couple different designs and and turned it in, and then you know four weeks later or whatever. Um, you know, happened to be at the store and they announced, you know, and I saw my name on the, on the bulletin board and it was like, it was, it was a very surreal, uh, feeling. And then, you know, and I, you know, went over to the guy, uh, you know, the cashier and I was like, Hey, you know, I think I, you know, I won this contest, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, he, he, he looked at me, you know, I had to show ID of some sort and he was like, Oh yeah, you won. And, uh, <laughs> and the, the prize was a gift certificate for a hundred bucks which was great. And I'm sure they were like, wow, all right, someone's, you know, finally going to buy that, you know, that death of Phoenix that's sitting up there on the wall or whatever. But instead I, I spent it all on trade paperbacks, which were like 11, 12 bucks, maybe, nice. you know, or 20 bucks even, you know, and so I got like four or five of them. Uh, and they were Sandman and Hellblazer. And, you know, cause I knew about them, but hadn't, didn't know how to dive into it. So I just bought them because they, they looked so cool and reading them, uh, you know, was just an eye opener, you know, especially being, you know, in like an English major in freshman year reading Sandman. It's like, you know, it's really kind of where it hits the hardest <laughs> in a lot of ways, you know, because sure. Sandman is so like English 101, you mm-hmm. know, but on a, on a fantasy level. And it just, yeah, it just sucked me right back into it. And then it really made me want to, you know, just... I follow comics as a as a thing because it was cool now and there was a there was like a, a maturity to it and 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 a you know I could justify it on a literary level too and and you know it, so Vertigo was always where because it rekindled my my you know love for comics it's where I wanted to work but you know it was a small office and and luckily I was able to uh, get into it when Stuart Moore's assistant Julie Rottenberg. Um, left and then so they, they needed somebody else and, and that's when I got in. So were you just hanging about um, after college like were you living in New York were you back at home were you just kind of seeing what was what or how did you Yeah uh, gee, what's, I'm trying to remember um, This was what the, I guess the early 90s right mid 90s? Uh, late 90s I late started 90s, working okay. at Vertigo in 97 I, okay. because I had a job and was moving from one job to I think when I got the job at Vertigo is when I decided to move back into Manhattan. I'd kind of been in and out, and then you know, and living back in Jersey because it was possible, and and any sort of 
way I could save money was great. Uh, so when I finally got, you know, a more steady job uh, working at Vertigo because working at Disney Adventures was part time, they mm-hmm. they didn't want to pay me uh, <laughs> benefits. So I was a I was a kind of Heidi for pump. shame. No, it wasn't her. She fought for it. It was oh, nice. Disney okay. Disney Adventures, uh, the Disney Publishing's uh, policy at the time. They had a lot of permalancers, uh, so you you would work just under forty hours a week. Oh, sure. Uh, Ironic, and, by uh, the way, that Marvel and Disney are now one and the same. But right, wasn't that, yeah. wasn't wasn't at that time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so yeah. So I didn't have uh, health insurance and that sort of stuff. So I just I just moved back. Uh, with my mom in Jersey and I did that, you know, until the vertigo job, which then came with all these perks and friends of mine were, you know, looking for roommates in the city and we, we moved into the upper West side somewhere and did that for a few years until I left vertigo, uh, to go freelance after two years. And, um, and that was tough, but like a very calculated decision knowing that once I left freelance, I didn't necessarily, have I didn't know how things were going to go. You know, I felt uh, pretty confident of my abilities, but you you know, I didn't know what kind of work I was going to have and how much there would be. And rather than take any job, you know, that came my way, I could kind of bide my time a little bit more or wait for things that were more appropriate. You know, because you you never know if something is going to come up and that ties you up instead of you know waiting for the thing that would be a better fit for you um for me when starting out as a freelance artist i was really tried not to be typecast in any way like Mm -hmm. i wanted to try and do a bunch of different things so that people could see a range of art from me um partially partly partially because the way my art looked at the time and what my interests were and what my abilities were, people, there was a tendency for people to kind of put me in a retro golden age mold, um, which was fine because I liked doing that material, especially liked, you know, kind of looking up the reference and, and, and that sort of thing. You know, being able to take kind of golden age style designs, you know, doing historical kind of JSA material sure um you know was was really cool and a challenge and i really approached it like if i were alex toth how would i draw you know the justice society you know in a kind of in my version of the super friends style you know like how do you give it weight how do you make it believable how do you make it look cool in spite of these costumes not being you know modern uh, right. You know, the, flash you, you... A, the flash has a, a tin plate on his head, right? And that's still cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. You know, and then those costumes were, you know, arguably more clothing based than, you know, any of the Silver Age ones were, which is mm-hmm. more graphic and, and, and abstract. Um, so, in a way, that kind of played to some of my strengths. And, you know, but I wanted to be able to do that kind of stuff and then maybe do a crime book or do horror, you know, just because. It's easy when you're starting out for people to just want one thing from you, and, and especially since they can't really, you don't have a large body of work to point to, you know. So uh, a lot of it early on was, yeah, just you know trying to bounce around a little bit and do different things. You know? Sure. So, so um, and this is great. I, I want to make sure that uh, that, that I don't 
before we we jump uh, too far ahead, I, I so so when you're at, at college and then jump in right after college, were you were you constantly drawing for yourself? Were you were you doing like did you draw? Did you do other kinds of? Were you a fine artist? Did you did you uh, experiment with lots of mediums, or were you often just drawing comics and illustration just for your for your own volition? Um, like because it just you know you said you you kind of came to the conclusion I'm going to try and work in comics, but then from my vantage going from editor to two years later, Sam, I'm going to go be a freelance artist. It doesn't yeah. like, how, like what, 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 what gave you the confidence other than the, uh, I guess the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 um, the, uh, the joys of youth when we're all overconfident, but what, what, um, you know, how long were you illustrating and, uh, you know, such that you thought, okay, I can, I can illustrate for a living. Yeah. I, I was doing, you know, illustration or, or illustration type of stuff in college. Okay. You know, it was, I was not, one of the funny things, yeah, being a visual arts combined major with English meant I was kind of basically taking a half load, course load of each. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have quite the same, uh, you know, re- required classes. And, you know, looking back on it, I wish I had done more painting and, and more design stuff and, and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, a few drawing classes, uh, printmaking, which I really loved. And then, you know, but all of that was in a way geared towards comic book illustration on, in some, on some level, you know? So you always had a draw to it, even if you didn't know. Yeah. 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 I, I, so I love drawing. I mean, I've always, I'd always drawn since being, since, you know, I was a kid, uh, did a little bit of drawing in high school. And then, you know, and then when I got to college, right, it was, you know, had to do, did more of it. Uh, and to be honest, I wanted to draw comics by, by the time I graduated. Like that was the goal. But knowing that that was even more competitive in a mm-hmm. lot of ways and that my skills weren't up to snuff, I knew I needed more time to work on my art. And it was actually strangely easier to work in editorial than it would be to start off as a as a freelance artist. And going to doing the editorial stint actually helped my art because I saw so much professional art cross my desk every day. Right. And every day the FedEx uh, you know delivery would come, and I'd open the box and see the brand new pages and Xerox them and check them against the script. And then, you know, and then the Xeroxes, we'd have to do the balloon lettering, you know, for the, the, for the letterer, you know, we do a guide, you know, where the, from the script, you know, what the, what the balloon should be. And it was, it was like grad school, you know, for making comics, you know, and it, I learned so much just within that short time and it really did help me get better as an artist you know, and then after about two years, uh, you know, I was drawing comics on my own, doing sample pages, doing sample scripts. Were you showing uh, those things to like Karen and, and, and other people at, at Vertigo or no? Yeah. Yeah, I was trying not to be too pushy about it because, sure. you know, it's there's a way in which like you're working there and then like you can tell when someone's really wanting to be doing something else mm-hmm. uh, and, and it becomes annoying. <laughs> so uh, I didn't do that, but I did show it around and, and people were, were interested in it. Uh, you know, it had this kind of golden age, Steve rude ish feel to it. Um, not as good, of course, but you know, this kind of proto, you know, uh, you know, rough, 
you know, learning, but, you know, there was, I guess, some potential there. And some of the editors uh, responded to it. And, you know, one of the funny things is at the time there was a policy, and it might still be in place, where, you know, if you were on staff there, you weren't really, you had to get a waiver from Paul Levitz to work on books. This cut down on editors writing books for each other. Um, got it, got it. You know, and that sort of thing. So uh, it was it was difficult for me, and it was, and frankly, drawing takes so much time that to have you know a full time job and then go home and draw comics is really hard. So anything that I would do there would need like twice as long of a deadline. So usually there wasn't anything available that would accommodate that, you know, except for luckily uh, some of those uh, the big book uh, series that. Uh, paradox press was doing mm-hmm, sure like those things had a nice long timeline yeah so uh my friend uh who was working there uh jim higgins like you know gave me a, a few gigs on that but you know i was really trying to get into the dcu or vertigo um, yeah to do to do more stuff now you you are you are um a benefit i would dare say and we are to an extent as well you are a beneficiary of the time with which you were born because you your first exposure to comics was during a time when I think many would consider one of the halcyon eras of comics. And, you know, the early '80s were certainly, yeah. um, it's to this day are, are held in, in, in extremely high regard because of uh, there was lots of incredibly powerful uh, capes and cows books. But then, of course, we got things like Watchmen and Alan Moore burst onto the scene, and we had the British Invasion and Morrison, and it just it just was an incredible time. And then you end up becoming an editor at the place where for many of us was almost a second infusion of passion for comics because we were all getting older and the idea of comics as a medium to tell other stories in different genres with a different maturity level and sensibility. I mean, you were living it. If I'm not mistaken, weren't you one of the editors on a hundred bullets? Yeah. Yeah. That is my, Uh, that is one of my favorite. Well, dare say my favorite. DC series of all time. I, 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 I worship at the ground of, of, of Azarello and, and Eduardo. I, I, I think that's just impeccable. So even if you had the smallest part to do with that book, I, I thank you for that. Cause I love that. <laughs> well, you know, it was really exciting when hundred bullets launched, you know, there was there vertigo had been, uh, so much in the shadow of Neil Gaiman's work. And for, with a hundred bullets, you know, Axel Lonzo, and Azarello developed that and, and to have a crime book like that in the line that was so well done, you know, and, and revolutionary, it, it really changed the, uh, the arc of the imprint, um, you know, for at that time, you know, it's just, it, it was, it was something that they hadn't, it was a genre they hadn't addressed, mm-hmm. uh, fully. And, you know, it, and especially, you know they needed yeah it, it was a it was a hit that they definitely needed you know like preacher was so great but it was its own thing mm-hmm. and you know you couldn't really do more preacher you know and for axel to pursue crime comics in that way really he he really made this niche for himself and and all the creators uh you know that that he worked with it was it was pretty great yeah no he doubt felt like something new was happening and and, sure. and that kind of excitement was infectious. Oh God, that, I love that book so much. <laughs> One of the things that uh, you know, we've we've been been around for for God almost ten years, and we've had all measure of, of 
of people up and down the spectrum of comics in terms of of different roles. But but it, I, when I knew we were finally having you on, I realized that we really haven't had. I mean, David, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, we really haven't had someone that's been um, whose principal job, at least for part of their career, was was that of of an editor. And it got me thinking that that. Um, most people in, in, in our role of, of, of I guess, analysis or, 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 or criticism or, or discussion probably unfairly only talk about editors in a, in a, as a pejorative, right? I mean, in the sense that, <laughs> right. that people, you hear people very casually say things like, oh, I didn't like that event. That must have been editorially driven or, <laughs> right? Or, and, right. And, and, and so I, I, again, I, I certainly want to, spend plenty of time talking about your, your, you as a, as a creator of comics, but, but I would love because you're imminently qualified to talk about this, maybe to discuss since you've lived on both sides of that relationship, what, what, what is the role of the editor uh, in the, in the creative process and, and, and for commercial comics and, and, um, and has that evolved over time? And, you know, I guess what I'm asking is, is do we, do we, the collective comics, uh, cr- criticism community give editors short shrift. Yes, probably. Um, mm-hmm. And and the reason for that is the editor's work is essentially invisible. It's mm-hmm. all work that that goes into a final product that is credited to somebody else. You don't know what the first draft of that script looked like. You don't know what the editor massaged or 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 fixed in some cases. Um, you know. Uh, the editor's job is to advocate for their talent, for the company. They're the middleman between the publisher and, and, and the creators. And they're there to realize the creative potential of, you know, of, of, of the writer and artist and, and of the creative team and bring out the best uh, of what they've done. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, you're as a creator, you're too close to something and you don't see where you've mm. where you're not clear enough or where that you could where you could make something stronger or more powerful. And that's what the editor does is they come in, they say, all right, here's a story you've written. It might be better. Have you thought about this X, Y or Z? You know, have you set up eyes. this? Yeah, it's, it's another set of eyes uh, occasionally, you know, and, and, you know, it's not always smooth. But with a good editor, it they'll actually make you feel like you came up with that idea yourself. Right. But it's something that they've they they have you know um, they're looking out in the distance. They're 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 a few steps ahead of you, trying to anticipate creative hurdles that you might have to you know jump over. Basically, so, the first audience. You're you're yes. It's the yeah. you're you're seeing what. They're trying to get the finished product to be like, and and so mm-hmm. that and that's see normally yes like like Jason said it's we hear about the events part and and I know that you know well editors will make sure like I'm sure uh, you know, with Bendis and his grammatical errors so to speak you know it's like I'm sure editors could have have a headache with with certain creators but like you said you know they're usually a good editor a great editor is invisible but I I I like hearing about the. Uh, the feedback part of it. I appreciate that. There's, I mean, it's a tough job because they're torn between two worlds. They have a responsibility to the publisher, you know, that pays them that, you know, that to their boss. And yet at the same time, they have an artistic, um, 
you know, responsibility to the creative team. And you're, you're as an editor, you're usually juggling that, and hopefully, you know, everyone's interests are the same. But occasionally, they're not, you know. And you know, often at say Vertigo, you know, a creator might want something, want to push the envelope a little bit, and the publisher would not be comfortable with it. So, how do you navigate that? How do you, you know, how do you make everybody happy, or at least make everybody equally unhappy? Um, <laughs> right. Right. Sometimes that's the job, right? Is essentially not be the bad guy per se, but to facilitate to, to be the, amel- the ameliorator, yeah. right? And say, listen, yeah. uh, they're giving you a little bit here. You're going to give a little bit here. We're going to meet in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or sometimes, you know, you realize that there is no compromise and that you either you can either something is a mistake, you know, to, to, you know, to soft pedal it, you know, or, or to, or that something needs to go all the way, and, you mm-hmm. know, so you fight for it, and, and that's your your creative team always has to feel like you have their back. Sure. When that relationship breaks down, you're not going to get good work. And one of the interesting things is, uh, and this is something Axel told me, and that he learned from Archie Goodwin, which was, uh, as an editor, you can't ever want to be on the other side of the desk. You, you can't ever want to be writing the project, you know? Like, I'd asked this of Axel. I was like, you know, you're, you're a great editor. You know, why you ever feel like you wanted to, to write? And he's like, he said, no, you know, it's like editing is its own career talent and, and set of skills. Like, you can't feel like you can write something better than your talent. Um, you, what you can do is feel like you can bring better writing out of them, but you can't feel like you want to do it for them. Because once you do that, you've crossed a line, and and you're not honoring their work. So did the so, did, did the context of that conversation help germinate you saying, you know what, I I I think I need to go out and try this on my own because you did want to be a creator. Yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, yeah. You know, it was one of those moments where at, you know after talking, it was like, you know really had to sit and think and like you know it was like is it going to be enough for me to you know it was great to call up. Duncan Fregredo and talk about his storytelling and be like, Hey, this is, <laughs> this is really cool. Like, you know, I love, I love these pages that you did. And, you know, and, you know, we'd have great long conversations. It was such a, you know, a cool thing to be working in editorial and be able to talk to creators, especially as, you know, someone who was starting out too, as an artist. Um, I, I definitely learned quite a bit just almost firsthand by talking to people, but, you know, it made me realize, yeah, it's like, if this is really what I want to do, I have to give it a shot or I risk being bitter about it later, you know, and not fair to the people that I'm working with. You know, if I'm an editor and wanting, you know, saying like, you should draw it this way, you know, and there's no shortage. I mean, there are definitely some great examples of artists, editors, um, you know, and, and the impact that they've had on the industry is, is, is really interesting. You know, I mean, even Archie himself was a great cartoonist. Um, so, you know, th- there's, uh, a lot that can be added, you know, from, you know, we tend to think of editors being primarily from a writing perspective. Sure. But like, you know, um, but comics is such a weird beast where, you know, if you do, it's about storytelling and you can right. do that in, in, you know, through the writing and through the art together. Well, that, so. That's an interesting, that's another interesting avenue of how much, how the industry has evolved over time because, um, if you look at the, the germination of, of at least the, the big two, uh, as you alluded, most of the major editors were, in fact, the, the major creators, and they sort of took turns 
being the boss uh, until you, they weren't realized they weren't good at it or they got tired of it. Um, yeah, especially actually, actually, when you look at DC in particular, you know, Dick Giordano, Carmine mm-hmm. Infantino, you know, Joe Orlando, like mm-hmm. there were a lot of cartoonists, you know, or, or artists, um, you know, um, heads uh, over there. And then, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, at Marvel, um, Carl Potts really in bringing a lot of great artists to Marvel and, and nurturing them. You know, yeah. I mean, but even I mean, Marvel too, right? I mean, you had Stan, who who uh, certainly writer. You then you had Roy Thomas, and you had Len Wein, and Wolfman right, and right. No, I was, I was thinking more specifically from a, from an artist. Uh, oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, and then you had, and then you had, um, I guess you know, Joe. Right. Yes, Joe. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, cool. So so, but you made the jump. You said, you know what? All right, I, this is awesome. But I, I have the bug to create. I want to see if I can do it. It's always been my passion. So, so you, you made the leap, and I was trying to think, uh, and David and I didn't talk about this before, so I'll, I'll let him, so I was trying to think the first time that I remember remembered uh, being aware of you as a creator, you know, the first time, like, I thought, oh, Cliff Chang, um, and, and I, it probably wasn't, I probably read things that you did before that, but for me, um, when I think back on you, the, the, the first time that I, I associate your name with, with a specific thing was, uh, was the Creeper, the Beware the Creeper stuff. Yeah, the the creeper stuff was really important and kind of seminal for me, just because it was not following another creator mm-hmm. on it. It was setting up a style. It was you know um, the first project where I could essentially kind of art direct it and was invited to do that mm-hmm. uh, by the editor uh, Will Dennis. Will actually. When I left DC, he ended up taking the job <laughs> that, that I'd left, and and we uh, we got close, and you know, within like a couple of years, you know, was I was you know more reliable as a you know as as a creator, and and you know, and he was. I appreciate that he wanted to nurture you know both the relationship and my talent, and, and you know, at some point, you know, I had suggested you know what about the creeper, you know, working with with Jason Hall, who he was talking to and had some pitches in from. And, you know, it, it, the creeper was not one of my favorite characters, but the idea being that with vertigo, they wanted specifically to kind of use, you know, these trademarks over, you know, they wanted to put a new twist on it, see what they could, you know, see what would happen. Mm -hmm. And, And I really, you know, artistically, that's a great challenge, and, and it's know, a visually visually arresting character. It's, it's, yeah, it's, you know, yeah. trying to keep that feel uh, mm-hmm. and yet make it our own. It was was a great challenge, and it felt appropriate. Uh, you know, having worked at Vertigo and, and reading all those books, I had a real love for creator own projects. And although the Creeper wasn't that in in spirit, it was. It was us, you know, putting our mark on something and, and really making you know not making concessions to you know it was an open playing ground there's no you know we didn't have to follow any sort of continuity you know we could just do what we wanted yeah i mean like i said that that's the work that i that kind of stands up and lights for me and i thought okay this is the guy we need to keep close up close attention to <laughs> david do you remember um the first time you remember cliff's work yes uh because one of these series that um that i had to buy 
from oh i bet i know what it is beginning to end uh cliff did a uh cliff did a couple of covers for uh the green arrow series oh um so that was when i first especially the the one with i thought um, you were gonna say human target but okay no because that was that was later yeah um the uh but the 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 um the zatanna cover of um with with uh from that green arrow run really stands out and then once once i wanted to know more that's when i saw the uh the breakfast club homage the purple rain homage and i was like this is awesome and then and then the uh some of the nightwing stuff but it was it it was it was at pretty much cliff as soon as i saw what you were doing um yours was a name that I would definitely check it out, even if I had no interest in the character or where the story might have been. But you were definitely a creator that uh, that if I saw your name attached to something, I was definitely going to be checking it out. Well, cool. Thanks. I mean, that's really, you know, like the the funny thing is there's so many books out every month and nobody picks up all of them, you know, (laughs) and doing something like doing covers was such a, a godsend. Uh, whenever I, I did get the chance to do it because it meant that like you were then on the stands in a different way and then mm-hmm. someone might take notice of you the, the, exactly the, you know um, the way that happened and you know and then then hopefully be motivated to you know to seek out future or past work um, you know those Green Arrow covers were really funny like they just came about by happenstance um, because there were a few I think James Jean was doing Green Arrow covers at the time yep, and, yep. and then I mean, it started so with, with Matt Wagner but mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. yeah, what a collection of cover artists that oh, we had! Oh my Jesus. god, that was fantastic. Although you know what, and I'm I'm I am kicking myself because as I'm going through um, your resume, and I have the short box here next to me, but I, I am I kicking myself for blanking on you participating in uh, the Grendel Red, White, and Black anthology. Oh yeah, that was yeah that was really fun. I mean, I. I it's always such a challenge to do black and white work as well. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but yeah, that was such a cool story. It was so, you know, like a CSI kind of, uh, story and, and, you know, and working with, yeah, working with Matt Wagner was just so, so great. It, was, uh, how much was, was Grendel a character that, that you were, it, I mean, since you mentioned the direct market earlier and that's usually, yeah. yeah. Uh, Grendel is a character I was aware of, uh, probably first through the Batman Grendel stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. Uh, that that two parter, right? It was like a two prestige books. Yes, I think. the, the first there was there was the um, the first series, the, the first two parts with um, with the Hunter Rose version of Grendel, and then a couple yeah. years later there was the yeah. one with the Grendel Prime. Right, and, uh, and yeah, and those were great, and I didn't you know wasn't able to track down any Grendel at the time. Um, but knew enough, you know, like whatever was out there, you know, I would try to grab trade paperbacks of it. And, and so Grendel was like always this cool thing and, you know, what a great design too. Uh, so it, it, you know, it was really, it was a great opportunity and, and, you know, I loved, yeah, the original series, it was black, white, and red, and then they did red, white, and black or something like that. Um, yeah, so to be a part of that was was very very cool and and interesting to move from DC to see how 
Dark Horse did it, you yeah. know, which was, you know, I, not that I worked there enough to really get a sense of that, but just like, you know, just creatively it, it felt, yeah, a little different from, you know, it's oh, not like working on detective comics, say, right. you know. The, uh, Cliff, you, you may not know this, but you are one of the uh, original seeds of my, I guess now, notorious original art habit. Oh, C2E2, <laughs> right? Yeah, because, uh, and I talked C2? about this on our, our, we had our, our 500th episode recently, and uh, Scotty Young was on, he's, you know, he's been on a bunch, he's our good friend, and I told him on the episode that, because um, I don't know if he ever realized it, that he was, his his Oz book, uh, that was the first piece of published art I ever owned. I, oh. I bought it on a whim because I knew him okay. personally, and I was at a small convention for another uh, another comics podcast that had its own little local show, Comic Geek Speak, back in the day. I mean, this is yeah, okay. yeah, and and we were it was like they had their little like three hundredth anniversary show, and we were there, and um, and there was a rep there, uh, Palo from Cadence. It was he had just started the business like two or three months before, and uh, Scotty uh, was he was rep by Scotty uh, was one of his uh, artists at the time. And I knew Scotty, and I bought the page totally on a whim. And I said, you know, that started the the insanity. And then, not that long after, um, the first New York Comic Con, I, I I was going around getting sketches, and I had no rhyme or reason, and didn't know what to do. I had paid it no thought, so I was asking for like Wolverine and Deadpool sketches, which, uh, in retrospect, I'm sure the eyes glossed over every artist I asked to do those because they're probably <laughs> like, oh god, another. Uh, but but nevertheless, and. I came to this conclusion that I needed to, if I was going to get commissions, I wanted to get something that was distinctive, something that I dug, but that uh, other artists weren't often being asked to do. Um, and it was that first C2E2 um, that I decided that I loved the character Domino, and I had never seen anyone else care about Domino. Yeah. And so I asked you and three other artists at that show to draw Domino for me, and those four domino commissions were the first of now well over 200 wow. domino commissions so i remember that drawing too do you yeah yeah because i haven't been cool. asked to draw domino more than once i think <laughs> oh there you go so yeah yeah right on. yeah okay so craziness wow yeah, it's, funny. it's funny how those things intertwine <laughs> but um so so you 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 you're doing your thing and then you jump into um you a couple different runs and, and then green hour black canary um uh, for a, you know a decent amount of time, and I think that's what you were doing when we 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 met at C two E two, and and then, um, you know, and then I guess we're fast forward a bit, and we we get to Wonder Woman, um, and, and and that that was super interesting to me because we have this debate all the time about whether um, I feel like hardcore comic book fans, and that would include we podcasters and, and people working in the industry. A lot of us have always spent a lot of our fandom happily following creators to projects, but I think I still lean more towards generally more fans follow characters or titles than they do. Yeah. I would artists, say that's right? probably yeah. pretty true. And or, or, the, or it's a, it's a mix. You yeah. Know, you yeah, might yeah. be like, you, you would follow a character until there's a bad creative team. That, or that's you follow right, a creative yeah. team, right? You know, until they work on something you're really not interested in, <laughs> right? And and for me, uh, Wonder Woman just was never a character that I um, could 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 dive into. Um, uh, you know, certainly I, I read her in, in team books and whatnot, but it just never. And I would always try her, whoever was doing the run, and it just never never held my interest. Um, 
And then it was announced that you and Brian were going to do it. And that, that, got, that got me super fired up because I knew of your work and liked it. And um, again, Brian at that time, especially coming off hundred bullets and the like, I mean, was, was, was definitely one of the writers that I, I saw it, whatever he was working on. So, um, you know, to, to, to whatever extent, I mean, you, you, you were on that for a, a good long while. And I can, I can say definitively that, uh, that my favorite Wonder Woman run, uh, of all time. And, um, I just, I loved what you guys brought to it. You know, you brought your own sensibility. It wasn't, it wasn't steeped in trying to tie the various and sundry and very complex continuities that, that, uh, she was burdened with over the years. Um, you know, you kind of you picked and choose, and I, I loved that you guys took a modern stance. But you, you, it was it was steeped in classic mythology, which I'm a huge mythology wonk. So um, I, I I love that series. But but you know, talk a bit about about jumping into that, and and when you jumped into it, did you did you do it um, with the eye that it was going to be the long run than it was? I mean, was that the plan from the start that you wanted to you know be the guy on that book? Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Um, you know, it's really, really uh, rewarding to hear that. I mean, we, we definitely, Ezreal and I really wanted to have a distinct take on the book. Mm-hmm. When we were asked to do it, we did not know about the New 52. I don't even know if wow. the New 52 was necessarily even come up with as an idea until maybe, you know... Um, we were asked to do it in like maybe about January of the, the year before New 52 came out, January 2010, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until April that at C2E2, at that C2E2, actually, I think, um, oh, nice. dinner okay. with, with Didio, and, and then these plans of it being the New 52 were unveiled to, to Brian and I, and we were just kind of shocked. You know this idea of like shutting down all the titles and starting over with fifty-two new ones, mm-hmm. and the what I didn't realize at the time, I and mean, I knew it was like it was a shocker to me that they would try that. Um, but what I didn't realize at the time is that it gave people a reason to try out books that they never had read before because starting over mentally, you know, meant that people could just jump in, mm-hmm. you know, that because it was, you know, supposed to be a hard break and not, not that it ever really was, but like it, it just gave people license to try it, you know, because there was no, you did, didn't feel intimidated by any backstory, you know, when Brian and I talked about doing Wonder Woman, it was very much the idea that we would have this twist on the mythos, but it was not part of a reboot. And, um, in a way, like, yeah, I wonder what would have happened if we had just done our thing, you know, separate from the New 52, if we'd started six months before the New 52 or something like that. Um, so it was, you know, what we did was trying to work within a cultural understanding of Wonder Woman, not necessarily continuity, but like what people kind of accepted about Wonder Woman being true and then turning that on its head and then trying to explore what that meant for the character and then also at the same time flesh out her family um her new family um that she's learned about so it you know it was it was really cool we we really just wanted to approach it as you know again like a like a vertigo version of wonder woman you know and just creatively own it own all the the you know the the creative decisions and 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 really put as much of ourselves into it as we could now i know that um when the new 52 was 
being introduced, um, Jim Lee had designed many of of the the outfits, the looks for 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 the bulk of the characters. Yeah. Just about, yeah. Did did he also do Wonder Woman, or was that or was that you? Uh, no, he did. Yeah, he did the the Justice League characters, and then uh, Cully Hamner would then take the the initial ideas from Jim and kind of tighten them up or, okay. or you know modify them slightly. So uh, it was. Uh, yeah, so we basically inherited uh, that design, and then initially that design had pants too, but then they ended up changing their mind about it later. I don't know if that was a deliberate thing or if it was a corporate synergy kind of thing, but you know, so the the first version of the Wonder Woman cover that I drew, you know, has pants on it, and then we I just digitally took it out. Jason loves hearing artists who work digitally. Oh, we're gonna get to that. We're gonna get to that. <laughs> Well, no, uh, yeah. So the original art, right, has the has the pants on right. it, but the published version has no, you know, has the shorts. Right now, fair to say, Wonder Woman is one of those characters where it seems to me that there's a divisive fan base. Lots of people have opinions as to what Wonder Woman should be and shouldn't be. So, as you guys are doing your run, there were plenty of people, ourselves included, that adored it, but. I'm going to presume that there were some people because it was different that took the other stance and said, this isn't my wonder woman, quote unquote, because we, we long time big two fans. all all have ownership of these characters in ways that we probably have no reason to. But, um, but uh, now that you've done this for a long time, um, what is it like, honestly, as a creator to put your heart and soul? Do, do you, do you steal yourself to, to the, to the, Reactions, and I mean that both both the praise and the criticism. Do you em- embrace it? Do you ignore it? Um, I mean, d- does it affect you in any way, or at least did it at some point in your career? I think you do have to try and understand where criticism is coming from, and not necessarily take it at face value. But mm-hmm. you have to understand like what their complaint is and why they're complaining about it. And for some, it's just like, well, this isn't what we know. And that's and and you can dismiss that, you know, because they just want they wanted dessert and you gave them something savory, you know. <laughs> and and there's no there's no getting around that, you know. It's never right. gonna you know it, you're never gonna meet. And then there, but the ones that are interesting to listen to are the ones who, you know, uh, are critiquing you know your creatively your choice and. You know, and and that can be really illuminating. And then sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. You know, like you you know, you can say that's valid, or you know, or I hadn't thought of that. And or other times it's well, no, that wouldn't actually work because, you know. And so there's always you have to evaluate, and and, and all the criticism, yeah, has to be weighed against you know what you were trying to do. Um, as well, and and whether it would have you know whether it kind of made sense in a, in a bigger picture, um, mm-hmm. but you know it, it's it can be overwhelming if you if you're if you're taking that into account from the beginning, you know you you really have to follow your you know your muse and do something and then consider it uh, because if you're just reacting or, or just uh, preemptively, you know, editing yourself based on hypothetical reactions, you really can't get anywhere with it and you'll never make, you know, uh, you know, any kind of bold statement. You'll just keep weakening it and watering it down. Right. 
right? And and was working with, um, you know, was working with with Brian. Um, did did the decision to work together was it born out of that you already knew him from your time at Vertigo, so you you knew that the process and the type of of writer that he was, and then yeah. You know, yeah, we, it's, it's a funny story, actually. I mean, because we, we had been working together or, or, and wanted to work together for a while. Mm-hmm. The first thing that we did together was, strangely enough, Dr. 13. Yes, and, right, right, right. And that was such a, a hoot. We had so much fun with it. And it was so irreverent. And it really, you know, to showcase Brian's sense of humor was just fantastic. Because he is a real, you know, he's so sharp and witty and you know, when you read 100 Bullets, it's part of the texture of the book. But then when you transplant that onto DC characters, you know, it, it's, it's uh, you know, you suddenly see it in a different light. And you're like, wow, you know, it's it, to do a humor book made our working relationship, I think, pretty close because you're relying on the other person to constantly deliver things, you know. And it was back mm-hmm. and forth on that because it was just like, you know, 16 pages, you know, I think, right? Or, yeah, a month. Um, and it was collaborative in the way that, like, you know, I would throw in visual jokes that he would then grab and, and expand on in the next chapter. Um, and a lot of kind of trying to one up each other. Uh, and creatively, it was, it was so much fun. And after doing that, we, you know, had lots of plans to do things that didn't materialize because of different, different schedules. Uh, because of other projects, um, we were supposed to do a Jimmy Olsen series that was oh. in the vein of wow. Doctor Thirteen, and it was just Jimmy Olsen and I think Superman essentially being a dick the whole time. <laughs> but it was yeah, it was going to be called Super uh, Jimmy Olsen Super Friend um, in quotes or something like that, and uh, and just him getting into trouble. And, and this, the, you know, and this kind of funny acerbic take on on the DCU, that didn't happen. Uh, and then I think I started working on Green Arrow and then Greendale. While we were talking on Greendale, we uh, the first wave books were developed. Right, right. And uh, the rollout of that didn't quite work out the way they expected to. They 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 had its whole idea. Uh, that uh, there would be a first wave miniseries drawn by Garcia Lopez for five issues that would then launch a whole line of books. Right. Right. Uh, and then that timeline ended up getting compressed and the first wave miniseries came out almost concurrently with a whole new line of books. So people didn't have a starting point for it. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it was a tough sell anyway, knowing that it was, you know, these pulp heroes, yeah. Um, you know, uh, made it you know uh, an interesting project, but in terms of the marketplace, you really needed to introduce that stuff a little bit more slowly to the to the audience. Uh, but we had talked about it, and as I was finishing up Greendale, and you know, uh, decided that we were going to work on first wave Batman, and so we started developing this whole long um treatment of you know of this batman story the pulp batman with the you know with the purple gloves and a gun uh running around uh and you know what would that be what is what are batman's pulp roots and how do we do a modern version of that and 
it was a, a great project and we when, so first wave then got folded but this idea of this pulp batman stuck around and we, and brian and i were planning to do it vertigo and that's when um we we're supposed to work on it, but then New 52 started, and so we're, and we ended up getting shifted over to Wonder Woman, essentially. So, um, yeah, so that that's basically what happened. Wonder Woman happened because the, Batman wasn't going to happen, and New 52 was, was the priority. Right on. So between between Wonder Woman and, and Greendale and, and your run on... Uh, Green Arrow and Black Canary, and then now with Paper Girls, it, it seems that you have been able to uh, sustain long runs uh, in an era where I think very few artists do. Now, now I think some do now with, with their own books, as you're doing with Paper Girls, but I mean, when you're working for Marvel and DC, it seems like most artists, uh, and I'm going to presume some of that's by choice, some of it's by mandate, don't don't stick around for multi-years on, on a given project. So, has that been... By design on your part, have you had to uh, advocate for that up front, and did you plan for that, or has it just been somewhat of a happy accident because the books have, you know, done well enough that you've been able to see them through, and and you you keep a re- regular schedule? I think it's more my work on it isn't necessarily sustained throughout the run, but it's working on with a team on a set of books. You know? mm-hmm. So, you know, something like Human Target, you know, we had a few different artists on it, but it was, you know, mostly it was Javier Polito and I, right. uh, you know, Wonder Woman had Gorin, you know. right, Gorin would do. Yes. Also, right. Know, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and Tony Akins and, uh, and a couple other guys who mm-hmm. really did great stuff. So, you know, we're all part of a team that works on this book, you know, and it's, so I guess, yeah, it's not actually until Paper Girls that I'm actually working issue you know every issue on something and uh but the idea was that knowing that i wanted to work on longer runs just to you know really dig in you know and get your get your hands dirty you know um meant that you know you had to put in the time and with for me i've always i'm not a penciler like i never penciled tightly enough and i don't think the results would look that great inked by by somebody else like there's a part of inking that for me is drawing and so mm-hmm. i've always inked myself just you know almost always and that meant blocking a certain amount of time for each issue you know at least six to eight weeks and when you do that it means yeah working with alternating artists and and you know that started with human target and made a lot of sense and then um you know i tried to then bring that model to you know to wonder woman and, and, and other projects right on so paper girls um first of all it's phenomenal and i had just uh, just got the chance to finish read issue 17 before we recorded tonight so ah, um, cool thank you yeah absolutely um but so it's uh, it's you and uh and and brian k vaughn and and matt wilson and uh jared fletcher right Yeah. Uh, And so if I remember as the story goes, you actually worked with Brian on a Swamp Thing comic long ago, but it was more of a 
classic like okay writer i'm gonna get you an artist and you really went through the editor it wasn't like you two actively collaborated or at least sought to collaborate with one another at that point but was that the germ of what led to you eventually deciding to do a creator own book together and and i presume just based on the tenor of this conversation and knowing you a bit um that that you, you had always probably had an eye on at some point jumping into creator owned work so yeah. so why why this i mean was it just was it because of the idea itself? Was it because of the chance to work with Brian specifically? Was it both? It was both. Mm-hmm. Uh, after Wonder Woman definitely wanted to take a break from DCU stuff and also having this explosion of great creator-owned books from Image coming out meant that you know I was going to be looking really hard at that. Um, Vaughn and I like really enjoyed working together you know, on that Swamp Thing one-shot you know, years and years ago, it was, you know, he was just starting out pretty much. And, and, and I was just start, I was definitely, you know, very green. I remember being on staff when, uh, Joan Hilty was bringing, uh, Brian in for Swamp Thing and, uh, and hearing about him. And, you know, and then finally when the Swamp Thing Secret Files came about, you know, I was lucky to be able to draw it the the way I got the job was actually kind of funny. My friend was uh, supposed to draw the book, but she fell behind because she had a full-time job in animation and I was helping her out. And then when um, she had, she, when she had to, when she had to leave the, the job, I then was able to jump in because I was familiar with the script already. I'd basically drawn, you know, most of it in, in like layout fashion. And, you know, and the book was the, they needed someone to jump in and do a lot of stuff really fast. And so like I basically had half of the work done already. So it just made sense to give me the job, even though I was fairly green, <laughs> but, um, but Vaughn really enjoyed uh, what he saw. He, he really uh, liked the storytelling. And, and I think there's a way in which we have a very similar pacing in our heads for comics. Uh, there's a kind of cinematic quality that, Brian writes in, uh, you know, the way, as a, as you know, someone who went to film school, like he he really, um, I could I could make that pacing out um, very easily, and you know, and I was interested in being a filmmaker when I was in college too, and so, you know, that kind of thing. I, we just spoke the same language, and it was clear, you know, working together just on that short, but we were never able to work together again after that for some odd reason. It just mm-hmm. our schedules didn't align. I wasn't the right person, you know, it, um, you know, it, it, and it was tough. It was sort of like, well, you know, especially to see how all the great work that he's done since, you know, it was just sort of like, Oh, well, you know, if we ever get a chance, let's do it. And, <laughs> right. Right. Like and, two ships passing in the night. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it happened like a bunch of times, you know, we tried, Oh, you know, maybe, you know, 10 years later to, to do something and it just didn't, didn't happen. Uh, we were trying to do, a Batman version of Smallville, I think. Oh, this okay. is right before Batman Begins. And then what the pitch that we had kind of talked about ended up being a lot of that was similar to the stuff that was in Batman Begins, and we just dropped it. You know? Oh, okay. okay. And then, you know, because, yeah, what do you do with, like, a teenage uh, Bruce Wayne? Like, what what should he be doing to make it interesting? We, we had some good ideas about it, but, like, it... You know, it, it eventually involved like you know control of you know Wayne Corp 
you know, and stuff like that. But um, but that that never happened. And then you know we just kind of drifted uh, apart uh, professionally. And you know, and then he started working on Under the Dome, and I was just like, oh god, you know, he's he's out of comics. <laughs> yeah, see him later, <laughs> but, right? Yeah, yeah. But after after um, after Wonder Woman finished up, he or was getting close to finishing up. Uh, he actually you know emailed me out of the blue and said, hey. You know, I've got some ideas for comics if you want to do something. I said, sure, of course, you know, and and that's how Paper Girls started. It, you know, I, we just said, yes, let's work together. You know, just that agreement, let's do something and being open. You know, our schedules were both open for it, which was just amazing. And then uh, and then he, then he sent me the pitch for Paper Girls and I, and I read it and I was like, this is so weird and there's nothing else like it. I'm not sure if I can even draw kids <laughs> you know and, and you know but reading it i was like wow this really hits me like in all the right places i'm i'm nostalgic for for these elements and yet i also want to comment on it as an older person you know and, and it made me i immediately became proprietary about it <laughs> uh you know because it was sort of like if i don't draw this i'm just going to be super critical of anybody who does mm. so yeah, that's not fair i should i should really do it. it's just trying to suss out like what my commitment to it would be you know because it's it, it's on the face of it i was like wow, you know am i going to be able to do you know like 12 24 36 48 issues of you know of these four 12 year old girls running around like is it, is it going to be that interesting to me and uh i wasn't sure but knowing, trusting Brian, and then trusting also my my sense of you know that will make it whatever it needs to be too, um, you know, just dove into it. And I gotta say, it's been like the most rewarding creative experience. You know, being able to come out come up with this stuff out of whole cloth, to have it resonate with uh, with readers, in spite of being a, you know a very personal story about getting older and and looking back at your life and, and choices that you've made. Um, it, it's really, it's really pretty magical. Like that's that's a kind of you know combination of things that you really hope for as a creator is that you can be doing work that excites you and 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 speaks to people and and challenges you too. I mean, it, it, it's wonderful. Every arc of Paper Girls has been different. I've been able to draw you know wildly different things yeah. and, and 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 at the same time focus on really great characters and and so it's working with with brian has been just such a, a, a just a really rich experience and makes me appreciate what i do on a daily basis as well as you know just admiring like the craft of the way he writes mm-hmm. and how how efficient he is about storytelling and yet keeps you on your toes you know it's it's deceptively simple, you know. There's a lot of like depth to what he's writing there, but if but because it's written in such an offhand way, you can miss it. But he's he's giving us everything we need in every panel in the dialogue, and, and <laughs> it's almost it like artist proof is the funny thing. Like I could just draw like really crappy stick figures, and you would be able to follow that story. And I think that's part of his brilliance is that like even you know. If if you don't do a great job with the art, like you can you can f- always follow it. But if I'm doing my job and I'm and I'm really you know trying to bring the most out of uh, the script, then then it becomes 
you know, this thing that's more than the sum of its parts. So what is, what's the working relationship like? How uh, does he lets you know what the plot of the issue is going to, or the arc is going to be like, and then you, what's the give and take like? How is it? There's, uh, it's weird. There's a lot of give and take, but it's not uh, immediate give and take. Okay. Um, it, it's back and forth is is probably the way I would describe it. We we talk about the arc in very general terms ahead of time. I don't see, I don't know, there are twists and things that he hadn't told me about that I would learn about in the script, which is I really fun. Okay. Yeah, and, and my tendency before this would be to say, give me everything sure. ahead of time so I can plan for it, you know? But there's a way in which like that can also with different writers that can just kind of suck the air out of the room, you know, because you're just, then then you're just, you've got this five year plan, you know, and then you know exactly what's going to happen. And what I love about working with Brian is that we trust each other. So I have a general idea. We talks about something you do. What do you hate drawing? What do you like drawing? You know, and then talk a little bit about character and then that's it. And then we, we just go off into our separate corners and work. Okay. And he sends me a script and it's perfect. Like, it's really great. If I have any concerns, I'll bring them up with him. But like generally like they're, they're so, you know, they're really well thought out. He doesn't do anything haphazardly or casually really, oh, that comes you know, across. like, yeah, so it, it you know there's planning, but it doesn't feel forced, um, okay. you know, in that way. So like, so he'll send me a script, and I'll I'll do stuff on it, and then um, if I've brought or, or thrown in something new, then he might take that in the next script, or you know, that or the the arc after that, and you know. So if I have ideas that stray wildly from what he's written, I'll call him up, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it's like. No, let's. He's not half-assing it, so I have to. It's on me to respect that and say, like, all right, I'm not just, you know, just going to start drawing a tank, you know, in the middle of the page, <laughs> you know, because I'm bored, you know. Sure. Um, not, not that I would get bored of his script, but just like the idea is to then, you know, he, his script is so deliberate. I need to approach it with that same level of, of confidence and craft and trust that he, you know, is, is saying what he wants to say. Mm -hmm. And then what can I add to that? Or how do I, you know, it's, 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 I feel a little bit like being a director, you know, and he's given me a great screenplay to work from, you know? So, but then it's up to me to figure out the, you know, stage the actors and, and, and how, how to focus on things during a scene. You know, so it's, it's a really, it's really liberating when you can just trust the rest of your team, you know, like sure if, uh, if the editor hat might come back on, you're like, you know, I don't think Aaron would say this. Maybe Mac should maybe run this line and, and we'll see, but occasionally that might pop, pop up or, you know, um, but you know, as being the, 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 the slowest one, like the the work takes me the longest. Um, you know, like the the script doesn't take as long as it takes to to draw it, you know, uh, or to letter it or to color it, you know. So like I end up essentially scheduling, you know, the book and giving deadlines to people mm-hmm. because it's just second nature to me at this point, you know. And and 
when the script comes in, it's like, yeah, I, I do, I read it a bunch of times and, and not so much for, you know, in, in my mind, I'll, I'll keep like continuity things, you know, like, like it's that kind of minor editing, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, you know, it's just kind of keeping the trains running in a lot of ways and, and, and just making sure everyone's working and no one gets stressed out and no one's late. You know, that's really the the key is making sure everybody's comfortable and has enough time to do their best work. Well, everything you're saying, I mean, comes out on the pages. And, and I, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I guess if you were have if you were to have pitched me this book, an elevator pitch, I'm not sure I would have thought it was going to be one of my favorite books. Right. If you had told me, OK, <laughs> a story about four 12 year old girls in the 1980s, they go on an adventure I might have been a little intrigued by the 80s part of it, but I might have thought, okay, I'm not sure. Is this a YA book? You know, I'm a, but but man, I mean, it, it just it hits the zeitgeist. And I would imagine, given its popularity, that it's appealing to people of all ages. But I can't see how anybody that's, again, a child of the 80s wouldn't look at this book fondly. Um, I mean, you know, you, you see the, the, the love and the, 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 the natural... Uh, I mean, it's, it's clear... It should be clear to everyone that you are either either a fantastic researcher or that you grew up in this era because <laughs> right. it's authentic, you know. Yeah, and, and I'm not, it's not to say that if you weren't 20, you couldn't do an authentic book about the 80s. People do, I'm sure, um, but it would have taken some research and some deft hand. But but you this you know you're steeped in this. I I, I presume um, in some ways you know Aaron and KJ and Tiffany and Mac are at least uh, visually analogs to some of the to the girls and women in your life back then. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, you know, and that yeah, comes that was, through. That was important to me uh, with with the '80s setting. You know, like I really wanted it to feel like a Spielberg film and not like The Wedding Singer. Yeah, you know, like oh, it, it needed sure. to feel like yeah, like, no, I, okay, for you know, sure, yeah. yeah, like like uh, it needed to feel authentic. It needed mm-hmm. to feel like real life because you're contrasting that with all the crazy fantastical yeah. stuff that happens. This is evocative so, to me of a, of a stand by me or a Goonies, the same, that same yeah. camaraderie that they feel for each other. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, what was the, uh, what's been the most challenging thing from a visual aesthetic? Uh, and, and, and can I take a guess that it's the bicycles? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You haven't seen them since the first arc really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah no that was that was pretty doing. tough i mean it's, yeah. yeah bicycles are such a weird thing because they're kind of flat but yet they're 3d and right. and, and i mean my my secret shame is that i don't know how to ride a bike so like a lot of it was actually trying to like reverse engineer you know what a bike is like <laughs> like the the parts you know and 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 how the weight you know on it and stuff like that it's like so uh yeah the bikes were tough um but you know, all of it is anything that's even, you know, hard to draw becomes its own challenge. And I, I try to find a way, you know, like I, even though I might not enjoy it necessarily or, or, or enjoy it on a, on a superficial level, like there's a way in which like I know it's, it's I'm better for it, for, for delving into it. And it's something that I've learned, you know, um, 
And may the gods bless you for 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 getting to draw a, a Applebee's burning to the ground because <laughs> all Applebee's should be burned to the ground. I, I don't want 200 years from now some other civilization to come upon Earth and and associate uh, the the quality of our species by the fact that we had Applebee's. So. Well, I'm just I mean I we we got to the mall early on and and I I saw Walden books and I was just like holy I mean it between the Walden books and the KB I was just this was Oh yeah. It, no it, it And then Delia's when you jump to 2000 you've got the Delia's. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's been mall. part of the fun is like yeah. trying to figure out what are the hallmarks of each era. <clears throat> like what can you put in there? And but yet at the same time be kind of subtle about it and 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 not. Yeah, you know. I love when they see the flat TV and they're like, "Oh yeah, bitch. it's so thin, <laughs> right?" Yeah. That, and it makes sense, right? I mean, the idea that that we all would have those gigantic flat screen HD TVs in our homes for relatively little money is is inconceivable when you're a kid. You just don't understand deflation of things like that. I, it's, yeah, I mean, I remember growing up with the same TV for years, yeah. like ten years. Had a like, knob. Who, who, you know, or, right? Or, yeah, at least. Clip, I know you, you have a young child. I think, right? Like yeah. a like a like a toddler. I mean, I have three three older boys. Well, it's a teenagers and then one preteen. But but I I tell them all the time because I'm a technology investor, um, as you may know, uh, and I I just tell them that they are in a they are living at a time that is unprecedented in human history because <laughs> things are evolving so quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, and I regale them with old man stories. Like I still, if, if if my father was sitting here, he'd immediately jump into the story about how when the Wizard of Oz um, television, you know, first came on television and it went from black and white to color, that his father uh, borrowed a TV from their neighbor and and set it up so that they could watch it in color. That was his first. That was the first time most wow. people had ever seen color TV. And then yeah, you know, then I remember vividly, like in the eighties, I remember we bought. My mother got duped into buying one of those uh, Omaha steak type of deals and filled our, our our walk-in freezer with you know enough meat to last for seventy three years for like a nuclear war. Right. And the allure of her paying for all that meat was that they gave her a VCR as a as wow. an animal gift. And, right. and I could just remember this monstrosity that was probably the size of what my my flat screen TV is now. Uh, yeah. You know, playing these video cassettes. And but now these kids, they I mean, they are seeing evolution. In a, at a pace that we we just never saw, and it just makes me crazy to think what it's going to be like for my grandchildren, um, how how quickly things are going to evolve. So yeah, and you get to play with that. I mean, that's the thing. It's a, it's an '80s book, and these are '80s girls. But but you visually, it must be rewarding that it's a time travel book because you've got to sh- you've gotten a chance to show us what the end of the century looks like. You've gotten a chance to show us what the far flung future looks like. I, I presume we're not done seeing different eras. We're going to see old, you know, we're going to see all the, the uh, so we're going to see plenty of, of, of other, other eras. And that is, you know, that is a new challenge for you for e- each time to, to recreate the, 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 the layouts and the, the, the hallmark imagery of, of those given times, especially the future times, which have to literally come from your imagination. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's challenging and, and, and fun. And it's, you know, the, the, the funny thing about it is we, no matter what time period we're in, we're also we're always geographically locked to Cleveland. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, trying to imagine like Cleveland of the future. What's Cleveland like in twenty six hundred? Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, like, so things like the um, the upside down pyramid with the tentacles that she touches and sees her future. Uh, oh. I forget if it actually has a name. I'm not sure that you've given it a name yet, but oh um, yeah, I think, but I but like, think. does that? 
does Brian say to you, "Hey, dude, I want a tentacled pyramid," or, do, or is that all? Is the visual is the visual stuff one hundred percent up to you? He had described the the other creature, the, right, uh, the, uh, the with the, the square eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he said yeah. it was kind of like a germ. Mm-hmm. I think that was inspired by one of his kids' drawings. That's okay, cool. um, he he didn't send me the drawing, but he said like you know it's sort of like a weird germ with tentacles and square eyeballs. You know, I was like, mm-hmm. okay, all right. And and then when the the other creature showed up, he's like, "Well, this is like the male version of that one, you know." So like, try and find a way, you know. But instead of like showing you the past, this one shows you the future, you know. So then trying to kind of connect it to it on on some organic level, um, mm-hmm. you know, was uh, was weird. He, I think he had something. I forget. I forget what his his. Uh, what his description was, but you know, it was a sort of like, yeah, but trying to stay geometrically based, you know, and, mm-hmm. and another thing I love about the book is that, um, it, it's, it's, you know, we're at a time, uh, I think largely for the better, but, but there are puts and takes with it all, but the, 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 the push and pull commercially, at least of, of this idea of being, um, you know, this quest for new readers and, 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 having to fight against the fact that a lot of people that buy big two comics are uh, old white men who don't want to see their heroes change. And then you have, I think the very much the need to foster new audiences that, uh, that show different people uh, from, from different walks of life. And I think that's important, at least for the, the health of the industry longer term. One of the things I love about this book though, is that it is a book about a bunch of young, uh, strong women um, of, of different, uh, you know, racial and, and, and religious backgrounds, but that is just that, that is just who they are. The book isn't, isn't about that. The book is about these girls and they just happen to be girls of color and girl, you know, and, and that I, um, I don't know if I'm articulating that well, but, but, but I think that's, a, that is another thing to be celebrated in this book that you guys are giving the world a, a book about diverse characters with a modern sensibility, but it's not for the sake of doing that. I mean that is a that that is just because that's who these girls happen to be, but the story is the story, and I applaud you for that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean that's that's uh, Brian. It was very it's important to Brian to to have that kind of diversity in in the stories that he's writing because he's you know rightly you just feel like you're not being honest, you're not being like truthful about the world that we actually live in, you know, and his stories are very kind of experience and not like you know he, I, yeah there's no political reason for the girls you know for their genders or for their um sexuality or religion or sexuality or or you know like it's it other than the story itself the story is the the, the engine for all of it you know right right yeah and mm-hmm. and you know but at the same time choosing those things allows us to revisit you know 80s genre tropes from a different perspective from the perspective of being older and and saying that you know so much of our entertainment back then was so gendered you know that you know so these coming of age stories are always about boys and they're always you know boys having freedom and and when you're talking about girls like why does it always have to be about you know their romantic life and that kind of you know like 
so one of Brian's goals very specifically was let's make this a cool adventure story with girls and not make it about, you know, about boys in any way, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, you know, I thought that was really smart and really, uh, really important too, you know, like hopefully, you know, um, anyone who reads this book will just, you know, relate to these characters. And, and if you're young and you can see yourself in those characters in some way, that's great. There are these gut punch moments. I mean, um, and, and presumably, uh, listeners understand that there's going to be uh, at least some mild spoilers here or there <laughs> for the book. We're going in depth uh, that that's, uh, that, that you understand that listeners. Um, but I mean, like with the, with the revelation, with the revelation of, about the leukemia and, and then, you know, the, the, you know, the home life uh, revelations, it's just, uh, like there are these, just these moments that, that hit you, you know, yeah. in the midst of all this, um, and and it just it again it just it just puts a punctuation on these being humans with their own journeys. Uh, so yeah. yes, it's this wild adventure, but wow, they're faced with you know the uh, one uh, one of the girls gets gets her period while they're you know escaping this this giant creature in this other time, and um, you know she's very matter of fact about it, right? But right. Like Max like, oh, are you okay? And she's like, it is what it is. But I mean. You know they're they're living their lives in the midst of this adventure, which is how it would be. I mean that is how it would be. You'd have you you'd, you'd still be human. You wouldn't magically get to hit the pause button and become a video game character. Mm-hmm. You know all of these experiences would still be around you. So so it's 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 well done. And and I have to say, um, you know it would be remiss of us not to uh, throw some love to your other creative partners. Uh, you know Matt, um, who I got to meet uh, this year for the first time. I I think his. His work on the colors is, is phenomenal, um, and yeah. I, I think the choices you guys have made in that regard to—it's um, not a, a flat; it's not like a natural color palette, meaning um, like a realistic color palette at times. It seems to me um, it's it's much more pastels and neons colors I associate with the '80s. I'm going to presume that's that's by design, right, to evoke the era a bit uh, and to have more initially... of a graphic pop feel. Initially, yes, I think you know that was like a, a maybe a bonus um, thing that it that it would feel '80s in a way, but it's mm-hmm. not deliberately trying to feel '80s. Or rather, the colors. Matt and I spoke about this a lot. You know, we wanted the storytelling to be clear mm-hmm. and emotional, and that means not being literal about the colors. I mean, mm-hmm. in any case, whatever you're doing in a comic book is not truly literal, you know, like, but you know, you have palettes that are just unfortunately just boring and and like not realistic, but just not very creative Yeah, because like, Oh, grass is green. The sky is blue, you know, like, and that's not the way light, you know, uh, affects color and, and, when you're if you're drawing it anyway especially uh with the the style we're using in paper girls it's just like you you need to make these things feel on on a storytelling level they need to feel real they need to feel emotionally one way or another and and that's more important than than rendering everything out and and making it you know um literally you know the 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 local color you know that that it is you know and you wanted to just sit on the page and, and make it as as appealing as possible and, and readable. So, 
you know, we talked about a lot about European comics and Mobius and 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 paler palettes, uh, you know, because they don't overwhelm or fight with the line art in a way, mm-hmm. and and it mm-hmm. makes the whole thing a lot more of an easy read. And you know, coming off of Wonder Woman, you know, where we were trying to, in a way, do our own version you know uh, of a you know a big budget movie you know like we want to just kind of step back and like kind of do less work but smarter yeah as much as 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 i i um i think matt deserves praise i will say that uh as a, a collector of 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 oa original art um you know technology's great and and there are lots of um there are lots of comics on the stands today where uh, digital coloring allows for um, a level of detail, at least handed off to the colorist, that that heretofore have been impossible. Um, but I think that sometimes is to the detriment of the uh, of the original art because so much of it is done in post production, and that's why I have to go back and tip my cap to you because when I look at these these pages for Paper Girls, um, when I'm looking at the black and when I look at the inked pages. Uh, it's it's still it's still as power it's, it's still as powerful a story I, I think so so your you know your inks are you know you you have a strong solid line on your inks that uh, that stands the test of time so well thanks um, it, it's it's you know knowing that here's the thing like when you work with someone uh, as as great as Matt like you have a trust in them and you can do things you know in the line art that you might not do somewhere else. And, you know, the, the paper girls art in particular is actually a lot more open than stuff I've done in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, if you compare it to, you know, um, you know, wonder woman or, or you go back, you know, like the creeper or whatever, you know, there's a lot more black ink on the page. Sure. Um, sometimes that's, um, that works, but like the, you know, the palette that we, you know, have figured out for paper girls means, all that stuff can be open and stuff that I would normally ink in in black, you know, will be a dark purple, you know, uh, or something like that. And so it, 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 it's a different range of, of values. And so the, the paper girl stuff is more open and there's less ink on there than I would usually put, but that's a conscious decision. And then you're kind of working with what you have there so that it's appealing. So it, you know, it's nice to hear that, that the uh, the original art, you know, still looks okay because to me, it's like on some level, like it was like because I'm I know that I'm holding back from my usual instinct to you know, kind of have huge swaths of black or texture or this and that. You know, it, so I think brevity of line is is um, is the hallmark of a maturing artist sometimes. So, um, you know, I think like if I I'm again being a a, a person of of the age that I am, I mean, I have huge, huge love and nostalgia for, um, you know, the original Image founders and and their their style. Um, you know, for some it's not their thing, but for me, I, I love Liefeld and I love McFarlane and you know and and but but I mean, you look, I mean, it was so so heavy with the cross hatching and everything. And 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 as I've gotten older, um, you know, my prefer, my preferred art tends to be more of a confident line where a little bit less is more. Um, mm-hmm. where it's left on the page. And so, um, you know, I think you've, you've evolved that way and, uh, for, you know, all, all, all for the better. Now, now we have to talk about process. Dapper David alluded to it. You know, I have to 
this is the part where I have to give a little bit of a side eye to you because I understand why you are all doing it, but I got to say I am I, I, I'm not generally a fan uh, for a purely uh, greed and personal motivation uh, aspect of this transition to more and more work being done digitally. Yeah. Um, I understand why you all do it. Um, I, I, I wish you all had to, by law, draw everything, uh, pencils and, and inks on paper, but, <laughs> but I understand that you don't. But, but with all seriousness, I mean, how has, how has, has, how has digital uh, changed your, um, you know, your, your, your work product or your process? I presume it's, it's made it more streamlined at, at, at a minimum. Uh, yeah, I would say, well, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to, to discuss because, I mean, the way I do it, uh, all my penciling is digital. I print out in blue line and then I mm-hmm. ink over it because there's an unpredictability with tools and materials that, you, that I've never been able to recreate digitally and, and, and a sense also of like having to live with mistakes or things that didn't turn out exactly the way you wanted to. And, mm-hmm. and it's hard to do digitally when you can just, you know, uh, take a step, you know, when you can just erase uh, your last action, you know. Um, the process of penciling digitally, uh, I have a lot more control over every aspect of it now. It's like, so I can do my thumbnails digitally and then that gets proportionally sized up to a layout, which then gets, you know, on a layer. So I'm not staring at like a, a light box and I can, I can tighten up my pencils. And if I drew someone's head too small i don't have to redraw it i can actually just enlarge it because i like the drawing and and it it's made my art my drafting uh, my technical drafting better um you know things like perspective rulers and 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 uh, being able to work easily on on multiple layers and things like that so as a draftsman i'm better because of the of the digital um penciling uh, and then it's also freed me up on the inking side because if I screw anything up, I, at very least I can just print out another version of the pencils. Mm, true. Um, you know, for, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's interesting to look at it from an original art perspective because I've always only ever inked my own stuff. So there's no other version of it out there, you know, like there would never be, it's not like there's, uh, you know, a, a page of actual pencils that has been scanned and then turned to blue line for some sure. To ink. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, it, like for me, I feel like yeah, it, it's not any any different. Um, but you know, I can see how it becomes a question. You know, with a different uh, art breakdown. Uh, no, you're still in my circle of trust because of the fact that you you ink your own stuff, <laughs> yeah. and it's one of that. yeah yeah. It's, yeah. I, I'm talking about there are a lot of artists, as you know. Whose work that I and many adore, who are just purely digital now, you know? right? Like like, like Dragada, you know. I mean, like Nick is sure. Nick, Nick is. Uh, we talked about this at the dinner. He and I. I mean, you know, he is digital, and it's been a life changer for him. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, and that's great. And I, and I think his stuff is gorgeous, and I I adore East of West. But but uh, and, and so for, now, luckily for for him, he he has time and makes a commitment to do commissions. Uh, and I'm fortunate enough to have a domino from him as well. So I, I so I scratch that itch. But I mean, you know, it, it's uh, again, it's a purely, it's a purely personal and uh, a, a, it's a personal uh, thing. It's just uh, it's it's greed. But uh, but but you know, but I am fascinated by the the way that um, you know digital has how different artists are are integrating digital into their processes. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely uh, 
you know, um, something that will, you know, as it goes on, will affect the original art market for sure. You know, I mean, this is like, yeah, the, the less actual, you know, physical artifacts that you have, the fewer of them, you know, then it's, it's going to change people's enthusiasm for it or whatever. But, you know, when it comes to the comics itself, like, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I think people are so good at making comics digitally now that like you know whereas five years ago you could see the you know you could kind of tell and now it's just you know i think everyone's just enjoying the creativity and and making stuff and and if you can do it digitally that's great and and you know there's so many tools available we're not stuck it's not the 60s um where you know art has to be photographed so that it's black and white which can then be colored you know like the freedom in the tools that digital coloring has given us means that, you know, we don't need to ink anymore if you don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, you don't need to draw like that as a result too. You know, you could really draw in color, you can paint, you can do, you know, all these things that, you know, before were unheard of because it just wasn't feasible on a print process level, you know, for sure. You, you had, um, I'd read somewhere some time ago, uh, or maybe heard you on an inter- another interview. Um, you made a comment that you thought that sometimes, um, in the process of creating art, inclusive of commercial art and comic art, that uh, that that creators tended to be a bit too precious at times. I mean, is yeah. that what you were getting? Is that what you were getting at in the sense that that like the strive for perfection can be can be overwhelming to the creative process. I mean, is that, is that what you meant by that? Uh, There's that as well as just the history of what comic book art looks like that Mm. you can just be too precious about drawing and, and, and this holy, you know, this, this idea of detail equaling value, um, you know, uh, or or a certain kind of photorealism equaling value in art. Um, this is very much more when I was starting out and it's just, I just felt like comics art had gotten to the point where, you know, people weren't valuing storytelling. It was just about surface and, and I hear that, that. that being, David's you know, you right now over there. Right? <laughs> and, and that takes time. That kind of art takes time that, you know, doesn't necessarily translate into better storytelling. So like, to me, it was like, what's, emotional what's punk rock what is gonna be the thing that kicks you you know hits you in the gut uh and and that being more important you know uh getting that across is more important than any kind of technical finesse that you can display because those books you don't always feel about them the same way that you feel about something that is that is told well like almost every you know comic book panel kind of falls apart if you look at it too long you know like <laughs> right. like if you really but if you're reading it at the pace you're supposed to be reading it at then then it, they're magic you know like you, you, they, they exist in your brain like scenes and panels will exist in your brain and 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 stay in there because of the you know the, the successful storytelling as opposed to just technical skill i think you're absolutely right especially because um my my oldest son asked me the other day, uh, went to the movies, and then he said, uh, why is it that the book is always better than the film? <laughs> yeah. Which was music to my ears. Cause yeah. And I said, you know, I said, I think 
it's a question everybody asks at some point in their life if they're a reader. I said, I think it's because when you're reading a book, it, no, nothing's more powerful uh, than your own mind in terms yep. of feeling your own personal, especially with things like fear or, or, or sadness or, or love. Your, your, your mind is creating the ultimate version of that for you, which is going to yeah. be so different than the version that David would want to see or, and what you would want to see. Yeah. Um, whereas, in, and, and so movies and television and, uh, and, and, and comics can, can be phenomenal and, and touch us in a meaningful way. But it's never going to be the same as when we plug it in our mind. And I think that you, what you just said is when comics are at their best is when there's enough not on the page mm-hmm. so that we're simultaneously seeing it, but we're filling in the blanks with our mind, which is making it that much more powerful. And I do think that that is the, that is the, uh, the, the, the peak of Zen when it comes to comic book creation. I mean, that's when comics are at their best. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's something that requires the reader to participate. And, and create the story, you know, and it's less mediated than something like film where you're literally shown a perspective, you know, there's a point of view to every camera shot and, and that's decided by, you know, the, the director ultimately, you know, and, but whereas, you know, with comics and, and, and that kind of storytelling is you're, you're brought along and you're, you're filling in so much of what's in between the panels mm-hmm. and, and bringing, uh, and, and as an artist, like I'm trying to subtly influence how you're putting those pictures in your head together. You know, right. there's a, there's a kind of nuance to, you know, what you're referencing and or what kind of continuity you have between from panel to panel so that you understand where you are and, and how a scene develops and what you're showing and what you're not showing. So it, you know, it's a, it's a really great. I feel, you know, like a, you, there's a a really strong connection with the audience, and I'm always keeping a reader in mind as I'm doing pages because you have to just. It's not about being about clarity so much as it is about narrative intent, mm-hmm. and keeping that clear, you know, as opposed to just nuts and bolts, you know, character, you know, is on this side of the room and then that side, you know, that kind of thing. Like that's that's boring. What you want is to make sure that your reader understands what you want them to feel, that they're feeling what you want them to feel. Yeah. Right. The um, I, for for my vantage, your 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 artistic style has continued to evolve, and you you try different things with different projects, which I love. Uh, and I'm I'm always struck when I see an artist such as yourself that does that, uh, and I juxtapose it against. Uh, and gosh, I wish I could remember who did the interview, but years ago when we were first starting the show, I listened to an interview. It might've been John Suntress actually, but it was Jim Lee was talking to somebody and apologies to whoever it was. I, I can't wish I could remember to give you the credit, but Jim Lee was, was doing an interview and he, I thought it was fascinating to hear him talk about, uh, that at some point in his career, he felt that he could no longer change the way he drew comics because he became so well known for his style <laughs> that he felt it was unfair and wouldn't be accepted by fandom if he changed materially. And that blew my mind because it was such it was anathema to what I thought oh. as a as an as a fan of the medium myself, how I feel. I I, I like I and again bluntly I nothing against Jim Lee, he's a phenomenal creator. I, but but I, I personally have seen enough Jim Lee comics but but the idea of jim lee trying something different 
excites me immensely. Um, yeah. Now, I understand his perspective, especially as someone commercially and financially that's <laughs> certainly got it all figured out. Um, but, uh, but, but how important is it to you um, to continue to, to try new things, right? Because, you know, most artists do at some point get perceived to have a style or a visual aesthetic. Like, like for example, Eduardo Risso, I mean, uh, he's one of my favorites, but you, you know Risso when it's on the page. I mean, his work is his work. It's his style, and, and that's fine. So, I mean, are, is it, is it, are you consciously trying to, you know, test different ways of, of cartooning? Um, is that part of your sort of motivation? Yeah. Yeah, that's part of the fun of every new project is trying right. to find like what. Let's see, maybe that's my editor hat is like you know trying to figure out like what does this project need, you know? And if I were to ask somebody else to draw it, who would that person be? <laughs> like what yeah. what qualities would I be looking for? And then trying to fold that into the way I draw. You know, there's a way in which style is the things that you can't escape drawing because if you could, you would do them differently. You know, and it's almost you know sometimes those are good things and sometimes those are negative things you know like i you know always drawing you know a certain thing a certain way you know or faces a certain way and then that kind of thing but um you know so there's a way in which yeah you you can't escape your style but if you at least try to push it in different directions then you will be or i I, at least i learn something new and then can hopefully add it to the toolbox Sure, sure. So I, I know that uh, there is an end in mind. I don't know that you guys have ever gone public with how long you think this is going to go. But uh, I mean, do do you have a, a you know, is there a, is the clock ticking or 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 is it you know is it for the foreseeable future? Um, it's not going to be a hundred issues. <laughs> okay, uh, but there's definitely a finite end. Like it's, it's a finite story mm-hmm. that. Brian and I have known about from the beginning and, and he knows more of the details of how it ends, but, um, it's, it's not something that can just can keep getting spun out, especially I think as a time travel story too, like the logistics of it become very difficult, uh, unless it just becomes quantum leap or something like that. <laughs> um, Scott so, yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, so yeah, there's an end in mind and, and we'll, we're, always working towards it and i think that's the goal of a good story is that you're you're building towards it so that it, it feels logical and, and 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 earned um and and i think you do need to have that you do need to have an end point in mind and so that you can reach that you know goal uh, narratively sure and emotionally and as you as you look far afield uh into the the next phases of your career um, again, based on this conversation, what I've known of you prior to this, it would seem to me that I would be surprised if you didn't have some stories of your your own to tell. Um, I mean, is that something that that you do uh, envision and either writing for yeah. other artists or, or or doing a book where you write and draw? I don't see myself writing for other artists, okay. um, but simply because I, I think. I've written for myself a little bit and I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Although I find it very time consuming, I think maybe because I'm just, it's always rusty, you know, and, and you, you know, you never do it enough to really get comfortable with it. And, and having high standards, I'm always just kind of picking it over and over until I feel like it's, you know, it's just right. Um, 
but the idea of doing a longer project uh, that I would write and draw is is really appealing. Um, but you know, it really depends on you know, you know, on what kind of stories uh, I come up with, you know, and then you know, or also you know, who wants to collaborate as well, you know. Like I really do enjoy the collaborational uh, collaborative aspect of um, of comics and and working with writers who you're simpatico with is you know you really do come up with something that that you wouldn't be able to do alone and 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 creatively it's also nice to just have that support as well you're not forced to you know carry the creative load all by yourself so you know mm-hmm. it i i imagine that if i were to do something on my own it would be on a smaller scale um just so that you know it's more manageable you know i don't sure. see myself doing like a long long series you know but i also just need to sit down and, and come up with whatever idea that is too so mm-hmm. hard hard to do when you're on a on a deadline too you know yeah i mean so so um Wife, young child, full schedule. Do do you have time these days to uh, to, to either read comics or, or are you do you other do you escape into other mediums? Are you a voracious reader of prose or do you? I know you said you once thought about yeah less less and less these days. Yeah, yeah it's uh, you know just trying to keep up. Um, you know, I, I, that's what I kind of miss the most about being you know twenty or whatever. You know, is like just having that time to daydream. Time, yeah. You know, um, to just kind of slow down and just let ideas percolate and, you know, and, and, but there's also a way in which, you know, as now that I'm older and more experienced, I like just getting down to work too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe it's just a matter of, you know, getting my ass in the chair and, and, you know, and, and that's it. Yeah, I assume you work, you work at home. You don't have a studio outside of your home. Uh, I do have a studio. Oh, okay. Um, working at home, I think, is really, really difficult, especially mm. once you have a kid. But mm. um, it's mentally, it's nice to be able to go to a separate space <laughs> that you know um, is set up for it. Uh, you know, it isn't doing double duty as your kitchen right. table. You know? Do you share um, that with other artists, or is it a? Uh, Yes, right now, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, it started off sharing it with with uh, Jared Fletcher and, and Andy McDonald, and then oh, cool. kind of, oh. we've had a couple different, you know, um, rosters over the last few years. But uh, you know, right now it's me and uh, Ivan Brandon. Nice. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Right on. In, in Crooklyn, I presume. Yep. Yep. Nice. Uh, well, I, I, uh, it's, it's time has flown. I, I appreciate you taking so much time to chat with us. I, oh I, yeah, uh, sure. No, thanks. I, I know. I realize now in retrospect, we didn't really, um, I didn't, I didn't say, uh, how long we wanted you for. So I'm glad that you hung in because we, we tend to go long. Our show goes long. If I know you probably, I don't know if you listen, but, but our show does go long a couple hours each, uh, each episode. Uh, sometimes we forget to tell people that and they're like, okay, so when are we going to wrap up? Okay. Um, <laughs> I gotta go make dinner. You, need, you need the length to really get into, you know, um, Kind of the, the the meat, you know. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, too. yeah, that, that's the thing. I mean, as I, I think I mentioned to you at the dinner, we, we um, to whatever measure of, of I guess if of us being successful at this, if, if if there is such a measure, I mean, I do think one of the things that we we do well is that we we always view having someone on as being sitting in the fourth chair. I mean, we don't we we've rarely had a situation where where we've had someone on where it's just specifically to ask them the obligatory 
you know, PR questions about the book that they're working on at the yeah. time because they want to promote it. That just doesn't really interest us. And I guess we've gotten to a point where we don't have to do that, right? I mean, that's not yeah. what our show's about. Well, that's what people tune in for. You know, they yeah. really want to yeah. hear, so, you know, why so right they do. Yeah, that's great. That's great. No, thank you very much. This has been really fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so if we, uh, I, I guess we will, uh, at a minimum, we'll see you at, uh, at a con or two uh, next year. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I look forward to uh, getting that email from Felix for when the next uh, <laughs> set of pages go up for sale. So cool, do, yeah. Do, I think do so. you have, uh, I mean, I know I've seen, I think I saw Felix do a video. Like, you have some art. Do you, do you, are you an active buyer of, of other people's art, or do you trade, or how does that I, work? I look at it a lot. Um, but I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm an active buyer. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, it's always hard, uh, to kind of justify picking up like more expensive pieces, but those would be the ones that I would want. Um, I think if I were at conventions more, I would be commissioning more. Um, that, you know, that would definitely, um, kind of scratch that itch as well. You know, cause like, yeah, if I want, if I'd want, pages they would be ones that i feel like were creatively significant to me and those would just be really expensive and barring that it would be commissioning those artists to do something cool you know um and so yeah i think commissions are you know are are a really interesting way to to you know to it's a different side of the original art um you know business that that i think is really really cool it it, it satisfies like the art collector and you're getting something new and and the way in which you know for myself too uh, commissions can help younger creators make make it through their careers sure, um, sure. is really just fascinating you know like I, I didn't consider that when i started out and then as you know early, much earlier in my career I, I started to see the commission market really expand and it's made you know, a lot of people, you know, it's paid rent and, 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 you know, there's no, you know, to have that as an option, uh, is, is just fantastic and, and makes, you know, keeps the lights on and keeps people working and instead of, you know, leaving comics for other fields. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 uh, one could even say sometimes being social after in commissions ends up, um, taking very accomplished cartoonists away from doing yeah. books because yeah, they sure, don't yeah. You know, guys like Art Adams and Adam Hughes and uh, Tony Moore. I mean, those guys essentially make, by all accounts, exceptionally good livings. But really, all they do now are commissions. I mean, they don't. Mm. They don't really. I mean, sure, I guess. Well, I guess Art, Art, and Adam do some covers. But I mean, but you know what I mean. Like generally, the the majority of their output these days are, are private commissions. Yeah, if you can, you know, if if your art is, if your if your commissions are, are that popular that you can do that, it's really. Uh, you know, it makes sense to, you know, for, for them to do that. And it's great that there's, uh, there's support for that, you know? So however you can make a living in this business, you know, that, that's, uh, as long as you can keep creating, that's great. For sure. Sure. Well, it was awesome. I, I, uh, I thanks so much again for, for coming on. We, uh, we won't wait, uh, we won't wait nine years to, to do it the next time. No, no, uh, <laughs> no so definitely, yeah. keep up the great work and, uh, and, and thanks again. And, I don't want to take uh, David. I don't know if you have anything else you wanted to jump in. I don't want to assume you're done too, but but uh, thanks so much, Cliff. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Okay, so that's when this cool. will 
do the rest of his magic if he ever shows up tonight. But yeah, right. Seriously. Uh, uh, this was great. Damn day well, jobs. So much. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, all of a sudden he's working yeah. shit now and, and we suffer for it. Uh, that's right. We're going to, I mean, he's kicking himself as it is because he was looking forward to this, but we'll, we'll definitely have fun rubbing it in. All right. Well, yeah. you know, we'll just have to do another one at some point. So. Absolutely. No, no doubt. Uh, yeah. Right on. So, uh, Awesome, man. Uh, how, what's your, is your wife into art at all? <coughs> she, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, she's a. Uh, we both uh, worked at Vertigo as assistant editors, and she went. Oh, I didn't realize Marvel. that. Actually. Yeah, and then now she's a film editor, so she's. Oh, she's I, very, okay, I didn't know that. Very well versed in in comics. Sweet. That 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 makes it easier. It does. It does. Uh, it makes the hours easier. It makes. And uh, it also makes, you know, just knowing that, like, what I do, she can appreciate it on a level that, you know, that most uh, people don't, you know, like she, you know, she, she, when she reads my work, she sees all the creative decisions that go into it, and, and which is right. really nice, you know. I'd say when you were telling your story, um, I mean, the, the, the conversation was about you, not me, so I didn't interject this during the recording, but when you were uh, talking about how you were into comics and then you didn't read them in high school and they're not really back into them in college. It was like the complete opposite for me. I, <laughs> I, I was super into comics up until the day I left for college and then being straight broke in college, I didn't read a single comic. Yeah. I've heard that too. Yeah. I've yeah. I mean, literally to read it and I may have never gone back and then I moved to Hoboken and, um, my then girlfriend who's now my wife, uh, we were walk- just walking around Hoboken just trying to get familiar with the town. Um, because I didn't really put a lot of planning into it. It seemed like a fun place to live. And so four of us just bought, got a place and, and, and lived there. And just walking down a street and, and walked past this tiny little LCS. And yeah. my, you know, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And I said, oh, stop in here. And she had met me in college. So she, I think she knew that I used to read a lot of comics and had like a lot at home. But I don't, I really wasn't a comic guy when she met me. And right. we walk in. And I just, I just, it was, I was, I by the time I left that store that day, I had a pool list. Right. <laughs> I never wow. right back into it, and I've never given it yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really it, it. You know, like when it, there's a, I don't know. It's, it just really scratches a certain kind of itch, and then like it really doesn't let go. Like mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I. It's been so long now. I can't imagine like not reading a comic, but like right. it's also different from when before i got into the industry and like wednesdays meant something else you know mm-hmm. uh now like i'm definitely far away from that uh and then you know i wish i weren't uh, but there's no way for me to get that back really you know yeah. um and but you know that's such a a big part of the experience you know i mean even if you're not there on a wednesday it's picking up your you know, your, your books, your pull list, or just, you know, books that you like, and then, you know, what order are you going to read them in when you get them home, and, you know, that kind of thing. It's, 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 uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's something I miss about, you know, kind of having, about being in the industry is like, I'm, it's not ever going to be as kind of sweet and, you know, almost addictive, <laughs> you know, uh, the way it was. I think that's the um, it is, it, that that is the conundrum of the industry. Frankly, it, it, is that right? The, the history, industry was created to be uh, mass entertainment for essentially young readers, yeah. and then with the direct market, that evolved into we kept going with it. Right? We we kept aging 
So our expectations, the core of the audience has never really rotated. And yeah. now, the, now there's this hardcore audience, which by all accounts still keeps the market robust. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, but, but we're all older and set in our ways and, and we, we're nostalgic, but at the same point in time, we've seen, we've seen these characters go through everything possible. So at one, in one, some ways we want the characters to be who they always have been because we're nostalgic for them. But in the other ways, like we've seen them go through everything. We've seen them live and die and love and lose. And so we're numb to it. And it's, uh, it's, it's gotta be difficult to, to, to be a creator for, uh, you know, like big two, like mainstream comics these days. Uh, it's because you're catering to an audience who wants to have their cake and eat it too. Um, yeah. You know, it's tough. So it must be very liberating. It's awesome. I mean, um, it's been fun these years doing the show, seeing the creator owned model become such a vibrant alternative because it wasn't, I mean, when we started the show, I don't, you know, I don't think the idea of doing your own books was really viable except for very few people. And then now lo and behold, it's, it's not only become viable, but, but almost better financially for many of you. Um, just incredible. It's gotta be very rewarding. It is. And you know, it's rewarding and, um, it just makes me more hopeful for the future that because people are just getting into different kinds of stories. We're not just getting locked into the same soap opera, um, you know, superhero soap opera that, you know, needs to be, you know, rebooted every five years, you know, Um, you know, it's just, and it's, yeah, the irony is, you know, the mainstream superhero comics is really not mainstream at all. Like it's, it's niche. It's, it's turned out to be niche, you know, because mainstream is Raina Telgemeier, you know, mainstream is Kate Beaton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I mean, yeah. I mean, Walking Dead, right? I mean, yeah. It's like I can't believe how many of my lifelong friends always thought I was an alien for being a comics nerd, and then like every one of them's read The Walking Dead now, (laughs) you know. But like they don't make the connection; they still see this different because it's 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 expanded into the, the 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 broader cultural zeitgeist. It's just not not perceived by people to be the same, so. Yeah, and I think, you know, we forget, too, if we're used to superhero comics, how weird they are, um, you know, and almost taboo. They, they feel, you know, um, transgressive. Well, I, I would have, that, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's the thing that, that I, to this day, can never get used to, is that we've got these films now, right, where everybody owns these characters in a way that, like we own these characters. Like we were at the shop in the eighties buying these characters when yeah. Thor was being turned into a frog, right? Like <laughs> they put that line into Thor Ragnarok for us. Most yeah. of the fans they don't make anything of it, but but yet, what a hundred, a thousand fold people have now been exposed and love these characters than had ever loved them before. And I still can't believe that that's the case. I can't believe that yeah, that I have under, forty yeah. and fifty year old neighbors who now think it's cool that I know all about Thor's history. Right. Yeah. Like to your point, like people used to be like, wait, you 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 read a book about a dude in a tight, you know, a tight costume with bulging muscles and a hammer and a what? Like, why, why is that? Like it right? Like it was something almost you said it like almost taboo. Like you, you not that I was ever embarrassed by it, but you could sense some people kind of felt like well, that's a little weird. Right. And now it's now it's like the most popular part of pop culture, which is incredible. Yeah, I wish I wish that familiarity with the characters would translate into an interest in comics, but you know, there's no, yeah, there's yeah. no guaranteeing that, you know, some, yeah, I mean, right. Some, yeah, that's, yep. Yeah. Yep. That's, I, I still think we're going to have to get most of that creativity from, 
from creator own, but they're always, I mean, there are occasionally, like you said, you guys attempted it with wonder woman. And like, I, I look at things with like, like the vision that Tom King did. And, you know, there, there are these, there are these pockets of that when, 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 when editors kind of let them do, do creators do their thing. Yeah. And that's usually with sort of the tertiary characters. Right. Cause they're, they're less, they treat those less, less, you know, with less, they're less protective of them. Yeah. 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 So, all right. Well, it's uh, it's getting late, sir. Thanks so much for uh, for the time, and uh, and uh, we appreciate it. We'll we'll probably have the episode up uh, tomorrow at some point. We will uh, oh, wow. right. we'll hit you up with the link, and uh, and we'll, we'll uh, hope hopefully uh, hopefully uh, it will get uh, showered with kudos and praise. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thank have you very much. Justice. You got yeah, it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Okay, Thanks. take care. Have a great night. Good night. All right. You did well. Is Vince back? Yes, I am. You're I just I'm, I washed my hands. I'm all just as he's leaving. You yes. come back and, uh, wait. Maybe Cliff and Vincent. Oh no, we have photo proof that they were in the same room together at once. No. So yeah. it's like that whole Superman Clark Kent thing, man. That was nice. <laughs> so my alter ego draws exceptionally well. <laughs> I would never go back to my my civilian guys. I, I would went be, to Harvard. I would be Cliff Chang permanently. Nice. Yeah, he's great. And he just keeps getting better and better too. It's true. Like I think it's the- really crazy to me that he didn't draw for anything other than his own pleasure, and then and then just after two years as an editor said, "I'm going to go be an artist," and it just did it. That's incredible to me. Power of the mind. Yeah. The will is incredibly potent. If you will it, you will get it. Potent, potent. That's right. But I don't remember what I was going to say. Oh, I think his Paper Girl stuff is better than his Wonder Woman stuff. Um. Yeah, I think he's grown. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. And as he's yeah. grown, the lines are becoming less plentiful. Like I'm, he doesn't noodle by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. But the Wonder Woman stuff is, I think, for him, very detailed. And then you get into the Paper Girl stuff where he he suggests instead of carves out we talked all about that in fact he did you really he attributes that to getting more and more comfortable with matt wilson look at that yeah so i, I i'm so pissed off i missed it but i can we go back and hear the economy it. of line and then how that's a sign of a maturing artist damn straight it is unless you're mobius yeah uh, he said that that was um that you know, Mobius was was probably not surprisingly one of one of the inspirations artistically for him. And uh, yep, we talked about how you know in the '90s there was so much line on the page, right? Like so much cross hatching. And that's a good thing too. No, it's just different times. Yeah, it's different times. Yeah, I like yeah. a lot of lines it, mm-hmm. when I'm in the mood, and and at times I like a, a very economical, very spare line, like Kyle Baker or Cliff Chang. So. Mm-hmm. But it was great to have him on after all these these years. Hell yeah, sorry, Cliff. Cliff, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry I missed you, buddy. My bad. It's all good. Next time we'll catch up. It's all good. Yeah. So big news. How about that news, though. Yeah. How about that news? Pray. Tell him about it. Um. Well, it was announced this morning, which is Friday morning. Uh, this is Friday that we're having this chat. It was announced that, um, and actually, cr- kudos to Rich Johnson. Got to get a credit where credit is due. He broke the story. 
I'm sure the major outlets were all going to break it today anyway, but he did. Uh, he was the first one with the story. Um, as of today, Axel Alonso is out as Marvel's editor-in-chief. Marvel put out a very terse press release saying, Axel Alonso leaves an incredible mark at Marvel. His vision shaped some of our most iconic superheroes and stories. We wish him the best. So that is corporate speak for don't let the door hit you. Uh, and in his place, uh, at least too many, myself included, a big surprise, but a very pleasant one. The newest editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics is Mr. C.B. Sibelski. That's crazy. Yes. It's so good news. I love him. Yeah, I think it's great. I, I think it's great news. Uh, and, and I gotta say, I'm I'm ecstatic at the uh, the f- the first part of this news because I don't think he did good stuff at all. But that's just my opinion. Well, we talked a bit on the Facebook group about this today, and and not surprisingly, because everyone loves drama, there were people asking, "Oh, what happened with Axel?" or "Do you know why he's gone?" so forth, so on. And I tried to say, "Listen, that really doesn't matter." I mean, first of all, we don't know. Right? I mean, we're not privy to that. Second of all, it really doesn't matter I, in that I, I'm just excited about the fact that we're getting a new e, EIC. I, I think the, the point you're making, Vince, is a valid one, which is that I, I don't bear the guy any personal ill will. No. Um, but I think that change was necessary. And in a position like this, I think sometimes change for the sake of it is, is an improvement. Because... Um, you see this in a lot of, of when, when, when a, a person is in charge, they have certain ways of going about their business. They have certain people that become their people. And it can just get stagnant. His message, his approach can get stagnant. People in their roles can get stagnant. And, and again, we don't really know what goes on inside of, of Marvel editorials. So, but as readers, we certainly have felt like it was stagnant. Right? And so... I just I'm excited at the idea that a new person who's never had this kind of role is going to step in and get a chance to imagine the place in their own way. And the thing I'm most excited about is that CB is an incredible uh, source of talent. For those that don't know CB, because he's been in the background in recent years, um, he's been working in China living in Shanghai with his wife as the uh, Marvel's vice president of international business development. Essentially they're working with uh, working to try and popularize Marvel properties in China. But, but his, his role is he was best known for, I guess, uh, and how we, we met him um, was as uh, a talent scout for lack of a better, he has, I forget his title, but in essence, he was a guy that went around the world to conventions and other places and, and, and sought talent for Marvel. And he, it's not hyperbole to say he was the source for much of the, this generation's greatest uh, Marvel creators, including by the way, our own Mr. Scotty Young. Yes. It's, he also he brought in a- Jonathan. He brought in, he brought in Hickman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil Noto, Adi Granoff, Sarah Pacelli, 
I don't know if he brought in Aaron. I'm not sure about that one. But dude's got a hell of an eye for talent. I mean, I've, I've, I don't think it's, um, it's an exaggeration to say that the majority of definitive Marvel artists over the last decade um, were, were scouted or brought into the fold by PCB. Yep. So Heck of a track record. Yeah. Now, when this news broke, Dap broke character and actually seemed excited about something. So, Dap, oh, why, were you, why were you excited? <laughs> yeah, I broke character, really? <laughs> That's cute. Uh, well, I'm talking about the business side of things. You don't generally get too worked up about the business side of things. When, when good things happen to good people, when, when, when things fit, when things make sense, when it's, um, when it's appropriate and it's fitting, it's, I, it's cause for celebration for you because we do, it's, you know, aside from the business side of things, comic wise, which, you know, people want to talk about sales or numbers or, or, or other bullshit that happens behind the scenes. Um, 2017 has been a kind of a shit year so when when good things do happen uh i don't mind uh breaking kayfabe it, it's one of those things where uh i i like cbm and i'm at a um at a c2e2 it's it's he's he is a he's a nice guy he's a knowledgeable guy he like you just ran down with the creators he he uh he knows the ins and outs. He's been there for a while. You know, I'm glad it's somebody like CB and not, um, which I always thought would even, we'd eventually maybe get Brevoort only because he's been kind of right below that role for like the longest time. So it just kind of made sense that he would eventually get, I don't know if he wants it. I don't know, but it, it's just, if, if you were to ask me, you know, if Axel were to leave, who would be the next EIC? CB would be on my wish list, but I wouldn't think that I'd be able to put him on there as as indefinite. So uh, I just think that that he is he is a perfect fit for the job. It's uh, and it's it's something to I think, as far as I'm concerned, genuinely be excited about. Uh, he is just um, I think it's a good thing for for Marvel period, I think it's a good thing for comics because it, it's, I, I know the, the saying is, is usually, you know, wherever Marvel goes, so goes the market. And, and I think if people, um, there are some, some artists on some Marvel books right now that, that are, that look great. You know, Marquez on defenders and, and when Pacelli was on, on Spider-Man and, and Somni now on cap when he was on black widow. I mean, Marvel does have good artists. You got Mahmoud knocking it out of the park and then they have, you know, a few artists where you're like, okay, well, they're just, I mean, I, I'm going to watch them. I mean, they're good right now on the books they're on. Um, so I'm going to keep an eye out for them. But I think it's, I think it's fair to say to a certain extent that if you were to look between Marvel and DC, that DC may have a stronger artist stable at the moment. And if, um, because of CB's eye for talent, and 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 his uh, his ability to get them to work with him, uh, I, I think it's a good thing in that regard. I, I'm kind of just looking forward to a a brighter, sunnier day with Marvel and you know and and Legacy, which you know I, I read a few of the books 
this week that that, that have the legacy banner on them. Um, it's definitely a, a step in the right direction. I think uh, the the hammond and hawing we've been doing with the Marvel books over the past couple of years, um, I think, might subside a bit if uh, if if what I've been reading is any if what I've been reading that they've been publishing is any indication. I'm not saying what I've been reading. As far as the business side of things, I'm just I'm I'm really optimistic for this. I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing what CB can do with this position. Bizzle, um, like you said, sometimes change just for change's sake is a very good thing. Uh, because he's such a well-known dude and responsible for a lot of the. Uh, creative kick in the pants that that marvel has seen over the years all those artists that you named with probably the exception of eddie granoff they're they're all amazing and i think they they all did 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 very yeah did very wonderful things at marvel and if he spearheaded that then bottom line i think right now marvel needs something like this to get all eyes on us Mm -hmm. so it's a it's and and the ousting of the former is going to generate some some good karma because I don't want to get into it, but I'm optimistic. I will check out the books. I really hope that they hire a competent graphic designer and change that legacy trade dress because it's horrible. Yeah, I know. If you're going to go it's for horrible. the old, old top banner, then then just go all in. Don't because right. even Marvel after a while realized that the top banner didn't work. We're going to put the logo underneath the corner box, and it's it's. It know, looks so. like a graphic design student tried to emulate old Marvel, and that's all they had. But it's just, and it's you it's know, too so thin. It's it is. the font is just it is. it's 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 not good. It looks like an afterthought. It's horrible. It looks undercooked. Yes, I like exactly. my pasta al dente, but yeah. I don't like my my comic book uh, covers. Yes, you know. Yes, yes. But anyway. I, I think it's a good thing. I'm 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 cheerfully, gleefully optimistic. I'll I'll keep an eye out to see what happens at Marvel. I'm not beyond jumping back in if if things mm-hmm. start turning, you know, uh, nice. So we'll yeah. see. Somebody peeing? No, that was you t- for two hours. I was drinking some more wine. Oh, okay, good. No pee, wine. It's just funny how the media can get things wrong. Because Time Magazine did a giant um, uh, piece on Axel in June mm. with, the, with the headline, Meet the Myth Master Reinventing Marvel Comics. Right. Mm-hmm. No longer. No. So, And again, I don't know Axel from Jump, and I, I, I think he certainly, at least when he wasn't EIC, when he was an editor at Vertigo and then at Marvel, he was a heck of an editor and brought in a lot of good talent too. Uh, I mean, he was the, the, the editorial force behind some of the, the, the best books we've, we've come across. So, so I, I, the man was, was, but, but yeah, it just, it seemed like for whatever reason, the, the house of ideas lost their way under his watch. Right. And, and then, look, you know, you, you get paid like the boss. You're the boss. The buck stops here. I mean, we all we are all grown ass men. We know that um, sometimes you you sometimes things don't go the way you plan, and it's not your fault per se, or it's out of your control. But you know what? If your name's on the door, if 
you're the head honcho, just like the captain of the ship, you own it all. So when things are going great, you got you get to scoop up the praise, and when things aren't going well, you got you got to fall on the knife. Right. And that's uh, but but really, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I I don't. To me, this isn't as much about did did Axel do well or not. It's it's more about that there's a new voice, and what we know of CB is that he's got a great eye for talent. He loves comics. The dude is a hustler. He basically said yes to whatever project Marvel wanted him to do. He's had a bunch of different jobs, including this China gig, and essentially became, as I said in our Facebook group today, he became Marvel's Winston Wolf. Whatever thing Marvel needed fixed, they looked to CB to figure out a way to fix it. <laughs> and so unlike most EICs, this guy knows the ins and outs of all sides of the company. He's been an editor. He has been a, a creator. So he's done all those things. And uh, more than anything, he has an uncanny ability to befriend and network with talent. And I, for me, when I thought we needed a change was when all of that ICB2 nonsense happened at the Retailer Summit. And Axel and David Gabriel were uh, getting eviscerated for some of the things they said. And while David Gabriel's comments about diversity and all that were the things that, that people most dissected, the thing I found most offensive, and I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect was the thing that was most offensive to the industry were Axel's comments about artists not moving units anymore. And it just seemed like when he said that, that he had given up. Like he had just gotten consumed by the idea that the machine is the machine and it doesn't really matter what kind of ingredients we put in. And maybe he didn't mean it that way, but that's the way it came across. And you can't have the editor-in-chief convey that viewpoint, right? You got to have um, – I mean, Vince, you – again, while you were in the bathroom, uh, <laughs> we, we talked about how Cliff is fascinating because he started his career as an editor. And so we tend – we, the collective we, tend to give short shrift to editors quite often. and um, With the exception and, of Archie Goodwin, maybe. Well, and, and Cliff, that's Archie hired him, and uh, and Cliff talked <laughs> about um, what a good editor does, the, the the logistics of what they do, and that it is a difficult job at the at the big two because your job is to both be the creator's staunchest advocate and to be the one that tells them no because you work for the company, um, and that is difficult because um, those two things are by definition at odds with one another, um, and so. Uh, the point I was making about this, though, is that he had said something to the effect of when an editor loses, like he, the editor has lots of things that they, they have to figure out how to do, but but the one thing they can't ever do is lose the trust of the creators that work with them. Because once you lose their trust and they don't think that you're looking out for their best interests, you're done. And is that what happened, Axel? I don't know. I don't know. We may, I, you know, I... That's for people that worked with him to decide. But but I, I got to tell you, I don't know how CB will be it as an editor-in-chief because he's never done the job, and it's probably a very hard job by all accounts. But I will tell you, he's not going to lose the creators. He, he I mean, of all things, whatever hundred things you got to do to be a good AIC, the idea of, of having a good relationship with the creators, he's, he's going to have that down pat. True that. So I tip my cup to him. And uh, 
and I'm ex- I'm excited. I'm excited for what uh, what's to come. <laughs> I am excited. I am excited. Yeah, we'll see. I'm hoping. For sure, man. If I listen, s- exactly. I mean, we we know. Listen, I mean, we we know we know what it's been like for the past few years. We're not going to get more of the same of that, and I seriously doubt. Based on CB's track record, based on his personality, based on what others say about him, we are definitely not going backwards from here. So it's, as far as I'm concerned, this is definitely a step in the right direction. And, and there is, and again, I, of all the times we've been to conventions, I don't, I may have seen him walking by, but I, I never met Axel. I know that people have nice things to say about him as well. But I don't when when he was when he when he moved from DC and became the editor in chief at Marvel, I I guess I kind of shrugged. I don't I was like, oh, I mean, I guess they know what they're doing and, and I, I guess it makes sense, but I don't know uh, he's been an editor before, so I, I I guess it's logical, but it's just one of those things where I mean when when I think of all the EICs at Marvel and not the Jim Shooter, you know. I mean, Jim Shooter was a Legion of Superheroes writer when he was thirteen years old. You know, I don't, I don't know how much Marvel Jim Shooter had in him when he was promoted for 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 his nine, ten, eleven years. But mm-hmm. it's it's you know, everybody who's been an editor in chief at Marvel has has done time at Marvel, and whether that's whether that's Marvel, whether that's Stan or Roy Time. I mean, there are just there have been the the, the EICs have have. Are, are familiar with the way, not just the way comics are made or, or or the business side of things, but they know the company and they know the characters. And 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 I think it's I think things are better when there's somebody who's familiar with 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 everything that's going on around them. You know me; I could not care less about the business side of things. Mm-hmm. really not concerned at all but creatively i just wish this is the the boost that i i think marvel needs right now mm-hmm. exactly. i want to i want to feel um a wave of electricity coming out of the creative people because hey look we know this guy this guy's in our he's in our corner we've worked with him before he's right. he's awesome let's let's go out there and just show him what we got Show, mm-hmm. show, show, show them what we got, right? Yes. So I did that for you. Yes, sir. I probably didn't I do you, it. I right. love you so much. Yeah. <laughs> White guy rapping, always uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, so there you go. Shout out to uh, Lil Peep. Rest in peace. Who's this? Exactly. <laughs> you didn't hear about that today? Exactly. This 19 year old rap white rapper named Lil Peep. Little I've never heard it. Literally, all never heard it. Up exactly. He, yeah. he all tatted up, and he died from uh, too much Xanax. Really? Yeah. It looked like he weighed eighty pounds. That's so. a lot yeah. of Xanax. Then that's a lot of Xanax. Yeah. Shout out. Sad. So young. Pouring out for little Pete. Beep beep. <laughs> Pour a couple of drips out for <laughs> little Pete. Pouring out He's not even old enough to drink. Some scissor. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, what else do we have here? I mean, we had a meaty meaty chat with Cliff Chang. Do you have anything you wanna you wanna throw out to the peoples before we? Uh... Um, that may have been directed at Vince, but I have to get this out. Um, it was directed at Vince, but go ahead. I think, nah. 
I well, just because I got to do it now, or else I will forget because I did not mention it last. Oh week. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, firstly, we have two shout outs. New members, new patrons, new um, new peeps. Uh, that is uh, Christian Renner and Daniel Bryan. So thank you, gentlemen. Whoa, uh, Daniel Bryan. Uh, not Daniel Bryanson. Mm-hmm. Not Brian Danielson. Brian Danielson. Uh, and we also, because you have until next week to uh, to make sure. Um, your emails are in, so this way Steven can hook you up, motherfucker. But basically, uh, as and, and he has said, your subject line could also be, hook me up, motherfucker, so thank you, Vince, for that. But the EOC Gift Exchange, send that email to uh, EOC Exchange. Uh, where the hell are we? Here we go. Okay. Uh, EOC exchange at Yahoo. Yeah, because I got like tons of bottles. Because also, well, there were other messages that were sent. So, EOC exchange at yahoo.com. Um, you're going to do the whole, you, you know what to do. You're going to do domestic or international. Let him know what country you live in. So, it makes sense. Don't, don't say domestic and, you're in Australia, and you want to send someone else in Australia, but Stephen sees it and, and thinks domestic is U.S. because that's where he lives, and you're actually sending internationally. So you just just be smart about it. But he's got a pretty good list of everybody who signed up so far. Get in on it. You have until um, you have until Thanksgiving is when uh, Thanksgiving Day is the cutoff date. So you have by the time you hear this, a handful of days to get that email in. Man, it's crazy yes, Thanksgiving is coming up so soon. Oh my God. Can't believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trip to fan. But no, I don't have anything I'd like to get into yet. I'll save that for next episode. Other than oh, my in your travels, that is. When, when, when Jason's not here, yeah, that, that, that's nice. Well, what's going on? Because next week's not, he's not going to be here when we record next Dude, Wednesday because geez. Thanksgiving is Thursday. Dude takes a lot of time off. Oh, I'm going to be away, dude. And whatever. He's going to be where they don't even have phones. The kids don't know, though. It's computers. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Mm-hmm. All right. I might, be able to, I might be able to sneak on. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. sure. Hey, everybody. Oh, my God. You know, we love our sponsor, Discount Comic Book Service, DCBService.com, because they have everything that I would love to have for a fraction of the cover price, such as from uh, Chapter House Publishing, we got Fentoma, the Trade Paperback Volume 1, and the uh, Season 2 Number 1 Floppy, both massively discounted. Dark Horse and Berger Books, with uh, Anthony Bourdain's Hungry Ghosts, number one. It's a miniseries, uh, $1.99. And uh, Jack Kirby, 100. Thick-ass trade paperback featuring all damn dare specials for $8.49. Well, I don't know how much more I could say about this um, 
in, ad- funny, it's in, your in, travels. in addition to what Nap said, but in, in your travels, I beseech thee, um, implore thee even, to get yourself to, um, where is it? Cankercomic.com, C-A-N-K-O-R, comic.com, to pick up the third issue of a man who I, I, I call him my, my favorite illustrator because he is. Uh, Matthew Allison's Calamity of Challenge, Cankor, uh, number three. It, this is his masterpiece. And it's not going to be his crowning achievement by any means. But for right now, this is his masterpiece. Matthew Allison is one of the most vibrant Um, I'm looking at the pages and I just got totally derailed. I'm, I was paging through this thing and I had a bunch of words that I wanted to say. Um, I like to call him the, the heir apparent to Bernie Wrightson. And I am convinced that, that it's true. As a character designer, he's unrivaled. I think his characters are absolutely amazing. Um, the line is beautiful and nuanced and alive and organic and the and shadows microns. Uh, yeah, that's just bizarre. The, yes. um, the, the shadows are thick as a, a nebula. It's just, it, this is an amazing, amazing achievement for one so young. If you haven't, but I do recommend getting it all. If you haven't read it at all, don't, you're, you're going to jump into issue three and be like, what the hell's going on? You need to get it all. Yep. Um, and I'm sure Matthew has a sizable amount of his back catalog available. Go and and get in on this Allison love because he's amazing. There's nobody out there like Matthew Allison. Uh, you can um, find him. Well, you could definitely hit up the um, the the. You can find him on email. You can send him an email at loafdish, all one word, L-O-A-F-D-I-S-H, at gmail.com. Like Vince said, uh, Canker Comic. And there is uh, his, um, you can find him on Twitter, at Matthew G. Allison. And, and that is, uh, that's two L's, right? Yes. Yes, two L's. So hit him up, let him know you want this, get on it, and uh, it's it. I my eyes, I just I can't, I can't stop staring at it. I don't. It's it's like I don't even. I I read it, and then I go back and I flip through the pages, and I I don't I I ignore the word balloons because I'm just looking at it and, and the caption boxes. I just I have to look <laughs> at the art. It's it's just and there is there. I I said it when I tweeted it after the episode ended but the shadow monster Ugh. in stranger things season two looked like he drew it when it first appears when he's when 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 will is in the arcade mm-hmm. and no no he's, he's on the bike and 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 he's just the the thing is growing 
and 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 the arms, the limbs are are just long, and and the way they're bending, I'm like, that looks like something Matthew drew. Hmm. Okay. There's a character in this comic called Starancor. <laughs> I wonder what the source is for that. But I didn't read this yet. Uh, just got it. Uh, haven't gotten around to, uh, you know, giving it the the uh, the justice it deserves. But it appears we got a Justice League thing going on. Yeah, there. yeah. That's all right. That is all right by me. But anyway, You're gooch with that. Uh, yeah, I thank you, Matthew, for this and the other thing. You are an an amazing, amazing person, um, and and an e- even better artist. So uh, keep it coming, my man. Keep it coming. Word. Yeah. Word. Uh, in your travels, if you haven't been, you only have a couple more weeks to get on it, to get it, and read it. Uh, your first nine issues of Walt Simonson's Thor to read along through our book of the month. Uh, those issues, I believe, are available on Marvel Unlimited. If you do not have the Thor Volume 1 collection or the uh, Thor Visionaries, Walt Simonson, first volume. But in your travels. Um, since I mentioned a couple of those um, Marvel Legacy issues, uh, there was one that I... There were two that oh, I, I read a couple, but uh, there's one that I was really impressed with. It was kind of like a done in one, um, and it looked great. But I, I already talked about uh, the past couple issues of Amazing Spider-Man, so I'm not going to do that this week. Even though 791 is really good, uh, but I read Doctor Strange number 381, and this is the first issue with your new creative team being writer Donnie Cates and artist Gabriel Hernandez Walta. Of course, we all loved from the vision. Uh, color is done by Jordi Belair and things are different. It's uh, everything's under new management and the, um, the, the Sorcerer Supreme is not who you would think the Sorcerer Supreme might be and and it's given away on the cover which is the second marvel legacy book i read this week that ruined whatever surprise you wanted to have in the issue by just giving it to you on the cover and i'm sure they also did it in in the solicits but loki is your sorcerer supreme and loki is a prick and and that's nothing new i like donnie's take on Loki, uh, it's it's very fitting based on what we've seen from from Walt, from Jason Aaron, uh, from from Fraction. Uh, it's it's even even McKelvey. There there's there are certain beats that I guess Loki has to hit, and and he um, they they are hit in this issue. Uh, Zelma Stanton is still your basically your, your, your apprentice, your, your, your page, your protege. Uh, so she's the carryover from, from Jason Aaron's run because the way um, Jason and, and a couple of issues that, that Dennis Hopeless wrote, uh, the whole thing with, with the anti-magic uh, cult, they, um, they basically just made a mess of everything. 
so we're kind of picking up pieces with that. So so the uh, so Donnie gets to just do something different, and and yes, Stephen Strange does show up. Doctor Strange is in this issue, and I enjoyed the appearance a lot, and I enjoyed the joke, the uh, the the diss, the snap that Wanda was able to throw at Stephen. And, um, and, and, and it's fitting that what we hear right now coincides with, with what happens on the last page, but I, I really <laughs> enjoyed the, no, that's cool. I, um, I, I, I got a, I liked it. I mean, I, Walter's art, I think, you know, it's, it's different than what we got with Chris and it, it just, um, but it's still, it obviously still works because it's not, you know, Loki's still Loki, and and there are certain things that you know. You, even though he is the Sorcerer Supreme, uh, you, he's not. You can't just you know. He's not. He's not Doctor Strange. So there's, there, there there's definitely um, there's a personality shift, and and I think the the art should change to reflect that, and and uh, and I think it's, I think it it, it it's a pairing. These two creators uh, on this character, I think it's a pairing that that absolutely makes sense. So um, there's an appearance by Thor. There's some texting. It's it's quite um, and and since Loki sees everything, Loki knows who Thor actually is. Um, but no, I, I I like the issue a lot. I'll um, I'll be sticking with it for a while. Uh, it's Doctor Strange, which I'm a fan of, even though it's not. Doctor Strange is in the book. I don't want to say it's a Doctor Strange book, so I got to get it. But it is. It's. It's not a Doctor Strange that you might be used to. But I'm. Um, I'm into seeing where uh, where they're taking the story and the characters. Excellent. I want to talk for a few moments about our patrons. Okay. Uh, there are six weeks left in this year. God, time is flying. Included in that six weeks is Thanksgiving and Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa, if you're so inclined. Um, And it occurred to me, being the planner that I am, that um, Patreon has fundamentally changed the amount of output that we are bringing to the table. It's it's I I know much and Vince is is grinning ear to ear over this. But I just wanted to, to to illustrate that to the broader listeners. So first of all, um, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash 11 o'clock comics, all one word, no hyphens, none, none of that stuff, no, no, no punctuation, one one o'clock comics uh, is where you'll find it. And uh, fair to say, six, we're six months in, it has been a smashing and humbling success. Uh, we... I'm sure some of you saw on the Facebook group uh, and on Patreon that we are at the six-month mark, which meant that any of you amazing people that were the first to uh, sign up for our Illuminati tier, uh, and there's 83 of you at the moment, but uh, some 44 of you were uh, were there in month one. As you all know, this is your care package month, because after six months at the tier, you receive a care package from one of us. And uh, we prepared those and got them out. So hopefully, y'all, y'all, y'all dig them the most. 
it was uh, it was a a, a fun, uh, although not not without its logistically challenging uh, aspects. But uh, it's all groovy. But the point is, through your support, it's been incredible, and as a result, we've added more and more uh, bonus content for everybody. And so, with six weeks left in the year, this is what our listeners have to look forward to. Vince, are you ready? I am so ready. Okay, so in the next six weeks, at a minimum, this is what our our listeners are going to get. They're going to get six more regular episodes, okay? Because we do, before we ever had Patreon, we had one episode a week, right? So we got six more episodes coming of the regular. We've got three more bonus episodes, because we've got one more to do this month. And then our two for December. That's nine. So that's that's up to nine. <laughs> We've got two Google Hangouts to do. Oh my goodness. One this month, one next month. That's 11. So we've got 11 at a minimum over the next six weeks. You all will get 11 episodes inclusive of video. So we're calling it episode for the sake of simplicity. You'll get 11 um evenings with us <laughs> which is pretty incredible and during those 11 included within them will be uh two books of the month one of which we already know is thor but we have and then we'll have our december book of the month so two books of the month within that 11 you will get uh a special guest from um another patreon tier who has um been exceptionally gracious uh, to be part of our sponsorship, and uh, he will be joining us in the fourth chair before year end. We've been talking to him about that, and uh, I know some of you, and he himself joked about it, are probably thinking, oh boy, is this going to be a, 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 a... Should I be worried about this? Because you never know. But he has been cooler than the gang, and I have every confidence he's going to be a fun a fun uh, guest. Uh, he's been very chill, very funny, so I'm excited about that. But you will have that. You will have two books of the month, you will have our theme episode, which is that every quarter, um, a group of the patrons that are at a certain tier get to collaborate together and pick a theme episode for us. They are still working through that, but they have uh, another week or so to to get together like a jury and, and give us their choice. But then we will, we will be doing that theme episode as part of this. Um, I believe, I don't want to say the name in case, but I believe we have a very special creator guest that is due to come on before year end as well. And we have our year end holiday uh, gift exchange uh, to do. So you're going to be hearing us a lot in the next six weeks. A lot. I, I mean, find that very, dis- it's very disturbing to me. Well, let's see 11 episodes. Let's see the video. Let's say it's an hour each. The regular episodes, let's say three hours each. The bonuses, we, we always theoretically said the bonus episodes would be shorter, but they haven't really been running shorter. <laughs> so let's assume nine, there's three, so 27. So you're going to get about another 30 plus hours of our dulcet tones before your end. That is insane. And it, we love you all good. for it. Yeah, we love we you all for it. And we especially have to, to, to again, it, that is for everyone, but special thanks to the patrons who are making that possible. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and we love you so much. So, uh, back to the In Your Travels. Um, I I mean, I really wanted to do In Your Travels, Mr. Miracle number four, but then I thought we'd talk about that book in detail every issue. <laughs> so, 
Like I don't know that it really needs a shout out, it but was it was an awesome though. issue. It, it was, was awesome. Was, it was absolutely. an awesome issue. Um, so I will turn my attention to um, uh, Grass Kings. Oh, nice. Yeah, um, we talked about what the first, first, or first and second issues. I don't remember when. We, I don't remember if, we, if the second issue had been out, but it's by Boom Studios. It is um, Tyler Jenkins and Matt Kent. This is really Tyler Jenkins's um, passion project, but he's good friends with Matt, and he he wanted Matt's help in both getting the book to print and then also helping him write it. Um, but this is a story. Um, if you don't remember our talk about it from the first issue, it's a story about a um, a rural community that is essentially um, not off the grid, but but it's uh, it's almost like a commune. They keep to themselves. They have jurisdiction over themselves, and the town is run by a, a group of brothers, um, one of which lost his his wife. Um, some time ago, and he's he's somewhat introspective and 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 reclusive as a result. But uh, but they have long standing, um, like Hatfield and McCoy level conflict with the adjoining town and the people that run that town, and it's been reasonably quiet for a while between those those two groups of people. But now things are things are underway that are causing that the, that strife to heat back up. So if you're a fan of like uh, Scalped or TV shows like True Detective. Um, this is right up your alley. Um, I, I think it's fantastic, and I, I've, I've read up through the fourth issue now, and I just think that it's uh, it's absolutely engrossing, uh, and I cannot wait to see. Between this and Briggsland, this is quite a good time for that off-the-grid uh type of story there's there's a few of them out there right now they're all pretty pretty badass so yeah so uh so give that a try it's boom studios grass kings i believe the first trade is due out i want to say next uh is it a trade or did they make it a hardcover oh is it a hardcover i thought it was a hardcover i thought i saw it solicited as a hardcover well there you go you you heard it here first everybody no it didn't mean you heard it right but just you heard. You heard. Yeah. So there you go. But it is dope. Gritty crime drama. It's, it's favorite. It, it's almost. It's, it's. It's um, not necessarily ironical, but it's 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 a gritty crime drama, done in Tyler's watercolor style. So it's. It, yes. Yes. It, well said. Yes. Yes. Yeah, but it, it's definitely a um. It, it is a beautiful book, and and I am I'm a few issues behind on it, so I need to get on that. And uh, and go see Justice League this weekend. It sounds like it needs it. <laughs> it does sound like it needs it. it could uh, use your help. But I think I think I'm not going to see it tonight. I think when we're done, we might try to watch the first episode or two of The Punisher. I forgot that even came out today. Yes, it did. Yeah. Real talk, real quickly. Uh, not this, but uh, was it two eighteen? Was that or two seventeen? Two eighteen? Punisher? Uh, no, it was. Um, was it two? Oh yeah, I think it was two eighteen because three eighty. Yeah, two eighteen. Yeah, two eighteen. Punisher was... two eighteen. The first issue of the War, War Machine arc. Uh, yeah. Not feeling it at all. And that was, and that was the other. That was the other 
book that, uh, aside from the title, Punisher War Machine and Punisher on the cover, wearing uh, the armor. Uh, Vince would like the cover because it's done by Clayton Crane. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, the whole issue is this huge setup where Nick Fury is talking to, to Frank because he wants him to sneak in onto an army base and, and uh, or I'm sorry, an Air Force base and, and steal it. Um, steal something and we don't know what it is until like the second to the last page when Frank gets into the room and, and, and flies out with it. And it's like, so, so I sat through 18 issues, 18 pages. And then I finally see what Frank's mission was for this issue at the very end. And then the story can continue from there. But I, um, I'll let you go first. No, I don't have much to say. I, I, I just wasn't feeling it. I, I, I thought artistically they go out of their way to make, make him look like, like uh, Bernthal. And it just rubbed me all kinds of the wrong way. I just like, I, I couldn't take it. It, it, I, I, it made me want to run away from, from, the, from the page. So, um, But my problem with that is that it's not consistent Bernthal. It's like if, if you're looking straight on, yeah, you kind of get it. But as soon as the head turns, it's like I don't, I, I don't know who your model was for the side profile. Mm-hmm. And it is there's there's some nifty tricks with some shadows, uh, and I and and maybe it was the presentation of it. I I wasn't I, I, I if I was younger, and and Mission Impossible movies hadn't ruined things for me, I, mm-hmm. I probably ooh and ah over Nick Fury's little holographic file transfer eyeball. Uh, and the the, uh, the the three-page origin story at the end, like with most legacy issues, um, was drawn by Matt Horak, who did the bulk of the, um, the post-Dylan Clunan series. And the Frank Castle, the Punisher in that story looks absolutely nothing like the Punisher in the main story. Mm-hmm. And and the um and I think it it looked like you know I like I kinda like the story that, that, that Rosenberg wants to tell. Matthew Rosenberg is your writer. Um and and we we, we talked about the art without actually mentioning the artist. It's um it's it's Guy Villanova. I'm gonna say it's Guy. It's G U I U. I don't know if it's Gooey. Or Jewy, but it, it's that's it's, my I'm, I'm saying, it's my it's my Gaiui Villanova, um, and Lilo Ridge is, is your colorist. The uh, I, I I like the story that Rosenberg is telling, but something seems this is one of those things where I'm like everything is is smartly written so far until Frank has to break onto the base. He's not going to try to cover his face. He's still got the big-ass fucking skull on, on, on his flak jacket. And it's like, you didn't even try <laughs> to, to maybe be a little more stealthful. And, and it's like, I mean, and yeah, I mean, by the time you're seen, you're going to run up to the dudes and, and kick him in the face. And I get that. But, I mean, you're just, you're, you're exposed. And, and, I mean, so if you get caught, it's like, you can't even try to, I mean, they see your face. It's like, how do you not? So it was that, that kind of bugged me, but. What made me smile, and this is me being petty AF, there are a list, a long list of names that Rosenberg thanks. Uh, he, he, it, 
he basically he is a big punisher fan and and going back to to when he was growing up in new york city and and found a punisher and saved up to to get amazing 129 and and he, he talks about you know what what the character means to him and and he mentions almost every creator who's ever worked on the character and and one name was was missing and I was surprised to see it missing. But that name is Chuck Dixon. And it was just, he, he had a pretty long time. You were the only yeah. person on the planet that noticed that other than Chuck Dixon. I don't think Chuck Dixon gave a shit. I don't think Chuck Dixon <laughs> He's too busy cashing in more Clinton cash checks, but he's, 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 um, I I was absolutely gobsmacked when wanting to see that name on there, but I mean everybody. You got Jim Lee. He mentions Jim Lee and Carl Potts and 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 everybody else. Alan Grant and and Tony Moore and Rick Remender. So there's the Frankie Castle mentions. I I wouldn't be surprised, but if if it was me, yeah, it, it'd be on purpose. Like I said, it's petty, but it it's it was just one of those things where I was just like that. That's odd because I that's that's the Ohatmu fan in me where I just gotta see what's actually written there but um yeah i liked it more than the previous volume of the punisher that that, that just wrapped up but um it's well, punisher well. so it has a little um it's got a little bit more leeway with me than than other books where i'm not maybe feeling the first issue uh so i'm going to stick with it for another couple see where it's going give rosenberg the benefit of doubt because i i haven't read a whole lot by matthew so we'll um We'll see, but yeah, um, I wasn't gonna go too deep into it since you you uh, you opened that mm-hmm. door. Yes, sir. Alrighty then. <laughs> With that Punisher talk, we put Vince to sleep. Now oh, it's a character I like. I just not reading it currently. You're not missing anything. No. no. Well, all right, everybody. Hey. Thank you for being here with us again. We always love having you. Would you join us, please, on our Facebook group? Uh, it's alive and kicking. The uh, The Twitters are, are on there, too. And you can always find some good stuff at our home base, 11oclockcomics.com. In the meantime, say goodnight, Sasquatch. David. Mm. Good night. David. I did say Sasquatch. See, I'm going to throw some random words in there. Percolator. But I'm saying you didn't. Like, when. Sometimes you'll say it. And then you say it again while I'm getting ready to finish it. It's it's all prestidigitation. That that word is picturesque. It is very picturesque. Come on back. We'll be waiting for you with a a nice hot or cold brew of your choice. Say goodnight. Say bye. Get out of here. Say it again. Say bye. Happy weekend. Enjoy the interview. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Say
church where you hope to be saved You think it's a girl, you misunderstood That just a man and his pistol would hold no Free. Come back in the future where you've never been